0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to the other side of midnight and a new year. Tonight is the first night of the new year of 2023, and our program this morning or this evening, whatever, is going to encompass what kind of has trailed off at the end of last year, 2022. And what could be coming in 2023. And what we're going to do is we're going to approach this from several different directions. We're going to approach this from the physics. um, Better known uh, on this segment of tonight's program is uh, hyperdimensional astrology. Our first guest is Rick Levine. And he has been looking at the celestial configurations, the alignments. And you know from past history on this program that those things do have and effect. The question, of course, is how precise and specific can you be, and we're going to spend the first uh, few minutes of the show talking about that. And then in the second hour, uh, Steve Bassett is on deck. There has been some major behind-the-scenes development in the UAP UFO government's slow, creeping, agonizingly rusty disclosure process and there's a lot of disinf- let me try that again there's a lot of disinformation out there from mainstream outlets new york times wall street journal uh washington post and there is a letter which has been making the rounds from one of the inside players who was very uh uh pivotal and uh, uh particularly uh, relevant in the early uh years of this latest disclosure phase back uh in 2017, 2018. So Stephen has actually written an editorial, and he's going to be uh, referencing that tonight. And then in the third hour, we have uh, a lot of members of what I'm calling the Enterprise family who are researchers and colleagues and uh, investigators and friends of the show, uh, people who have been stalwart and supported us all these years. And every one of them has an opinion or perspective or an analysis of what could be coming in 2023. So, and as you all know, you know, we're not dealing essentially in what is colloquially termed mainstream politics. We're looking at things that are out of the box, things that have extraordinary high leverage potential, uh, not the least of which, of course, would be the general acknowledgement by government and media sources that we are not alone, that we are living in a very inhabited galaxy and the solar system is rife with all kinds of visitors, Um, not quite sure where they're coming from, not quite sure what their intentions are, but there is ample evidence that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on that the mainstream media is not covering. In fact, uh, per Stephen's input, you're going to hear about some actual Rather intriguing efforts by the mainstream media to downplay everything and pretend it's not there and it will all go away. I want to start tonight, if you can refer to uh, the section of the website where we have something we call Radio with Pictures. Uh, I want to direct you, for those of you who are new to the show, uh, you're listening to us on some device, obviously. Uh, So what you want to do is you want to click on the... um, URL, which is our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says with a very elegant graphic that I blatantly stole from uh, a 1930s movie of things to come in 2023. I've always loved that graphic because it's so evocative of uh, what we're talking about going on right now. And you click on that, that takes you to the guest page and under the, where it says right under the banner, which duplicates at the top of the guest page, uh, where it says of things to come 2023, the enterprise family under that, it says to listen to show below that it says guest page and then fast links to items. Click on my name, which is the first one there that takes you to the appropriate section of the guest page, which features items for what we call radio with pictures. Last night, actually twice last night, uh, repeating from what happened on the NBC television network a couple days before, um, NBC ran, NBC News ran at least twice on MSNBC and I think at least once on the main broadcast network, a special which was called very provocatively Battlefield Space to the Moon and beyond and i'm got the whole thing up there it's posted on youtube so you can watch it if you missed it on uh on on television did not record it in fact i missed it because there was no pre-announced publicity they just suddenly put it up there and fortunately i was able to go to the youtube page for nbc and find it so that's the link it i wanted to see what the network what one of the main broadcast networks take on space that has happened in the last year and space to come in the next year uh, would be from NBC News. And it's very interesting because their angle of attack, their input, their, their approach to the whole subject was basically we should be getting ready for battles in space. Now, nowhere during the program do they mention ETs, They're basically, the big bad guys are uh, the Russians and the Chinese. But there are all kinds of inputs from the uh, Space Force people, from NASA, from astronauts, from uh, Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, from political people, a lot of Pentagon input, uh, that basically we're at war, even now, in space, in an invisible war, and that what, has happened is that the, the 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 background machinations of battles in space between participants from Earth has been moved from, as one of the uh, interviewees said, from behind the curtain into the mainstream. So the whole take on the coming year in space was a background of space war. And I know that uh, Stephen's going to have some very cogent things to say about this. Obviously, my perception is that we are being set up for when we find anyone out there who is not from Earth, and that's going to be a major part of tonight's discussion. Will that happen in 2023, uh, or will it not? Uh, the context, the position, the posture is going to be uh, they are potential enemy. Appears to be what this network special repeated, as far as I know three times in the last couple of days appears to be setting the ground for. So, against that backdrop, now you want to move down to item number two. Uh, As you know, we've been following a lot of these uh, return missions to the moon, including some from countries which have never gone to the moon before, like South Korea. And one of the things I've discovered that we're going to talk about in some detail later on in the program is that some of these players, some of these nations or commercial activities which are going to the moon, some of them for the first time ever, they appear to be leaking information regarding the real moon, the moon with artificial extraterrestrial structures on it, this incredible lunar wide dome. But they're not announcing it as a scientific or engineering discovery, they're posting it on these various websites just like it's some kind of artistic logo and you're supposed to think of it, unless you are in the know, as just a background not relevant to real data coming from real missions to the real moon. And I have two examples. Number two, this is what I found on the uh, Denuri uh, website which is listed there right underneath the title denari moon third dome logo enhanced it turns out that what they're doing is they're putting together real lunar images from somewhere that's the image you see in number two and over that image they are superimposing artistic graphics lettering logos typeface fonts the usual thing you would do if you were creating uh, an art piece, as opposed to uh, real information of a scientific bent. And when you look at their galleries where they list images that have been acquired by the spacecraft of which there are almost none and none since Denuri, which is the South Korean mission unmanned, about a 1500 pound spacecraft carrying three different sets of cameras as well as a bunch of other very complex and very sophisticated scientific instrumentation to measure, among other things, the moon's magnetic field, when you look at the galleries where the imagery from De should be posted since they arrived back on December 17th, there is nothing new. Now, as I've said to some of my uh, friends and colleagues over the last week, we were kind of gearing up to do this uh, New Year's night show. Uh, This is bizarre. Every time a nation goes to the moon and manages to get there, at least as far as lunar orbit, and I'm talking now about the Israeli mission, the Indian mission, uh, the Japanese missions, certainly U.S. missions, the first thing the new players do when they arrive at the moon is to brag. They publish all kinds of neat imagery from lunar orbit. Denuri, the South Korean unmanned mission on which a NASA camera called the shadow cam is quietly flying, courtesy of Dr. Mike Malin. And I do think the title shadow cam is so elegant at so many Dickinsonian levels for that experiment. It weighs, by the way, 33 pounds. For this mission, for the first time ever, when a new nation or a new commercial venture arrives in lunar orbit, they have taken and posted zero new images as of tonight. Zero new images. Instead, new imaging coming off as artwork graphics is appearing mysteriously and spontaneously kind of throughout the website in various categories for areas of the website you can explore to look at various details of the mission, such as the amazing graphic in number two. Because not only does it show what looks like a normal graphic uh, in terms of art, but that whole moon on the bottom is a real photograph. It's in color and it shows in stunning clarity all the physical features of this lunar wide dome that we've been reporting on now from the Artemis mission, the NASA mission testing the uh, manned spacecraft that's going to go back to the moon with people in the next uh, year or so, sometime toward the end of 2023, early 2024, and yet it's not listed as data, it's not listed as evidence, it's not listed as scientific information, it's merely posted as a graphic. The same with number three. This appeared on the homepage several days ago and it shows an astonishing moon, which has no business looking like that at all, because as you know, the moon is airless. Um, It's a vacuum. The atmosphere that it has, as measured by both the Apollo missions and by the Indian Chandra missions that have subsequently followed Apollo by about 40 years and sampled the actual atmosphere with mass spectrometers. So we're not looking at remote sensing. We're looking at actual molecules entering instruments and being reported in terms of their atomic weight, you know, their uh, ion configuration, whether they're molecules or atoms, things like that. Uh, We know that the lunar atmosphere is like one trillion, trillion, trillionth of the density of the earth's atmosphere and has zero, zero, Optical effects on anything except when you look at these photographs. now look at number four this is an enlargement that's been enhanced in terms of uh, sharpening and detail and and actually i've I've kind of put a couple of images together to give us more tonal range. This is what a special camera on the Denuri spacecraft call a pole cam or a polarimetry camera, meaning a camera which measures the polarization of light. Light vibrates in various planes. Circular polarization is when it vibrates in a 360 circle. Plane polarization is when light bounces on a particular angular configuration at one angle. And you can use filters to filter out the background and only amplify that particular polarization. This camera has several filters and two cameras which are wide-angle that can measure supposedly the polarization coming from the surface of the moon during the De mission. Well, this image in number four is an enlargement of what I believe to be, but of course there's no caption, no scientific information, no detail at all, but from the logic of the instrumentation and the logic of the geometry of the moon we are seeing, It was taken in space by De en route to the moon before the spacecraft crossed the lunar orbit for the first time on this long looping, extended slow boat to China technique, which gets them to the moon, uh, not directly in three days, like Apollo, but takes them like four months going the slow boat route, but they save a tremendous amount of energy in doing that. So you can send a heavy spacecraft on a light rocket and get there if you just trade velocity for time. So that's what they did, and I almost know exactly where in space that item number four, that photograph, had to be taken, and it had to be taken by the pole cam, the polarimetry camera through a polarizing filter, because why? Well, we know from Earth experiments and data from centuries ago That when light is bounced off glass, it is polarized, which means if you want to find the glass of the ancient dome around the moon, you take images through a polarimetry polarizing filter, which will suppress the background, amplify the polarized reflections from the glass, and voila, there is your dome. And that's what we apparently are seeing in image number three, image number four, image number two. And later on in the morning, we'll get to uh, uh, some other images that they have posted in this very oblique, tangential fashion, where obviously somebody is leaking, and it apparently is being done with the highest level um, permissions from those running the South Korean space program. And they're giving us what we should be seeing But, of course, they're not saying a scientific word about it. No press conferences, no captions, no statements, no explanations. It's like if you understand the science, you understand what they're doing. If you don't, item number five and six. Um, We're looking here, and and actually we'll we'll do this when we get into probably hour number two, because I want to bring Rick on. Um, Rick um, um, uh, Levine is a very, very interesting guy. I've known him for decades. Um, I never realized that we would be discussing, uh, among other things, uh, hyperdimensional physics. Uh, He's a professional astrologer. He's become a respected leader in the global astrology community. He is past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, um, co-founder of StarIQ.com a founding trustee of Kepler College and co-author of eight years of Barnes and Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. And there's so much more you can read his web page there on The Other Side of Midnight. Rick, welcome back to the Other Side of Midnight and to twenty twenty three.
1: It's always a pleasure to be here, Richard, and and I have to admit that when the show started this evening and there was a bit of technical meltdown just prior to going on. <laughs> all I could think of is the fact that Mars and Mercury are retrograde. Mercury just turned retrograde, and of course, you know, technical snafus are not uncommon.
0: You know, people say that all the time these days, but I don't think they understand physically what's going on when planets. Oh, I do. Yeah, but the audience. <laughs> so why don't and you? I'm explain...
1: sure you do. Too. Why
0: don't you explain to the audience why this cliche now Mercury retrograde? actually has real physics meaning in communications, electronics, and even human relations.
1: Well, it, it really actually comes from a few different directions, and I have a strong feeling you'll add another one when I'm done. First of all, uh, just like being in a train or in a subway car in New York City, train on the track right next to you, and you're going faster than it, it looks like it's going back. It's not really going backwards, but when every planet, real planets, meaning Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, and everything else out there, when they, on their normal path, get closer to Earth than they are at any other time in their cycle, they're like that train on the track next to us. We lose perspective, and they look like they're going backwards. So the first thing to understand... Is that when a planet is retrograde, Mercury included, it means it's closer to Earth than it usually is, and you can almost think of the radio station coming in louder than one that's distant. Number two, and you know, and and you know, it, it, it's really interesting, but this may be even um, more important um, that when a planet goes retrograde. It's almost like it's stirring up the field because from Earth's point of view it actually appears to be going backwards and so it's almost like like stirring the stew and then all of a sudden stirring in in, in an opposite direction.
0: Yeah, I I've, I've likened it to stirring the cream in your coffee when you pour it in backwards.
1: Okay, yeah. That 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 one works for me. Um but but I think that more than anything you know, from a standpoint of, um, of, of of a quantum perspective, everything happens in relationship to something else. And so we're looking at a distinct relationship between um, the Earth and these various planets. And when their signals are so close to Earth and they get louder, it's like we, we can't handle it. The, the technical snafus that are associated with Mercury retrograde are simply because... There's more information coming and going. We, we we kind of work ourselves into a place. It's almost like the old telephone operators plugging these things and making connections to making yeah. calls, and the lines are so flooded, they just quit. They give up. They can't do it, and that's what happens um, often in a retrograde. The The other thing of note, though, is, and Johannes Kepler actually wrote about this, and that is that, Because Mercury is the fastest moving of the planets from Earth's perspective, when it apparently slams on its brakes and goes backwards, we know it doesn't. It just looks like it does. That's the most radical change. It's like being in a little Ferrari going, you know, eighty miles an hour, slamming on the brakes and going into reverse. You'd notice it. But if you were in in an eighteen-wheeler, if you were in an eighteen-wheeler truck. Yeah, Rick. Music. Hang on
0: a second. I'm hearing cross talk on blog talk, Keith. I'm I'm hearing Barbara. So if we can, we
2: the whole thing.
0: Okay, okay, uh, Barbara. We don't need you know. Uh, there's some kind of a crossed wire. Rick, you're hearing it live right now. We're having a technical problem. Um, to me, you just need to mute Barbara. Okay. Well. Okay. But I'm going to need that pot when I get to the break. So, okay. Uh, Rick, sorry about that. So
1: the final punchline of this, that that is right. That was a typical Mercury retrograde, just too much happening at once. But if you were in an 18-wheeler going like a quarter of a mile an hour, just creeping along, and it then went into reverse, you almost wouldn't notice it. That's why the Mercury retrograde is so noticeable, because the apparent change of direction happens so fast, compared to, let's say, when Pluto turns retrograde, it barely moves one degree of arc over a two-month period of time, whereas Mercury, the retrograde, is almost instantaneous.
0: You know, I've noticed a real-world, non-laboratory example, which I've been trying to pin down, and that is LED light. Everybody, you know, has switched from incandescents to LEDs. And, and some years ago, um, I took out the fluorescence in the kitchen and Uh, put in LEDs and one of them has now gone on the blink except it hasn't. If I keep it on continuously, it will come back to life. And for a day or two, it will Mm -hmm. shine normally and then it will begin to flicker. And then it goes into this kind of dormant mode where you can barely see it. And uh, it's it's there, but it's not there. And then... Much later, and I'm still hearing Barbara in the background, and I've got uh, I've got uh, three four muted uh,
1: Keith. Um, No, she has to mute herself. From you, you can mute her from Skype if you have to.
3: Yeah, but that would mute uh, Rick.
0: That's yours.
3: No, I'm talking about in Skype. You can mute her on her screen. You can click on the three dots and select mute. If she doesn't mute, you can mute her.
0: Okay, well that's more okay. Rick, I'm sorry. We're. I didn't really mean the show and tell to kind of come up in your segment, but (laughs) here we are. But
1: You know, Richard, the three largest Internet outages that have occurred since the Internet, since the World Wide Web went live. I'm talking about large scale Cisco router down it down, you know, regional outages. The three largest occurred on the day that Mercury uh, these are over a period of 20 years on the days that Mercury actually um, stationed meaning that it was still in order to change direction because a planet changing direction um, is like a pendulum. It has to stop in order for it to change direction. And that's the most potent time of, of a retrograde. So there is a real phenomenon.
0: Wow. Well, I know that with this weird led light, ever since I put it in and then it kind of flaked out, I've used it as a kind of a backdrop to monitor the rise and fall of the physics because the, it, it's so sensitive. <laughs> in you know i'm not in a laboratory obviously with very expensive millions of dollars of equipment but the but the technology is so sensitive that slight changes in the physics change the electrical conductivity of the chips that make an led light bulb work and those subtle changes also affect computers they affect anything which is digital so basically we're setting up a world where with subtle changes of the physics, with planets going retrograde, whole swaths of our civilization could die for a while because the people that run everything, they pretend not to know this physics is real and it actually is running everything in the background, including consciousness.
1: Yeah, well, and of course... Uh, I, I'm not sure if you, uh, we've never spoken about this online, Richard, but I don't know if you're familiar with Robert John and the uh, Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Center and the whole ex- experimentations over a dozen years of the interface of consciousness with computer chips. You're talking um, about I the mean, so- there's no question at all that when we get rattled, our computers respond. You're
0: talking about the so-called eggs, the Princeton eggs. All around the well, world.
1: Yeah, that, I think that's part of a whole larger scenario. And
0: they're supposed to be measuring randomness. And when the when when background becomes more coherent and non-random, they respond and they produce results and they are tabulated. And um, the the biggest success they had was nine eleven, except it occurred four hours before the event, which introduces an asynchronous asynchronicity. In terms of time in three dimensions versus time in other dimensions. I mean, this is not simple. This makes relativity well, in, in look fact, like. In fact, one it,
1: of the things that, that they discovered at Princeton was that that um, human uh, thought could could actually impact a random number generator to generate odd or even numbers, but they could do it actually in displaced time. I mean, the, the results of this um you know- uh, b- boundaries of consciousness um mar- margins of reality is the name of robert john's you know in depth book after this whole thing um you know kind of uh, was said and done the that that the engineering research center now has closed but um but their work is tremendous
0: okay hold it there we' at the bottom of the hour. my first guest on this new year's night day number one of twenty twenty three Trying to look ahead using the physics, what I call hyper-dimensional astrology, as a kind of a long-distance search radar, is eminent astrologer, world-class Rick Levine, and we'll get back to what's going to happen, hopefully, in 2023. Mercury retrograde notwithstanding, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
2: All right.
4: Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
0: And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. This is the first day or the first night of the new year, January 1, 2023. And we're talking with Rick Levine, who is a renowned world-class... Do you mind when I keep calling you a hyper-dimensional astrologer? Because that's really what you guys are all doing, except nobody has taken the title, and I think you should be the first.
1: Right. Well, the word that I typically use to describe my work is quantum astrology, but it is hyperdimensional. It is, I mean, even just extending into the realm of time immediately moves it out of this dimension, and there's obviously something that makes astrology work as precisely as it does that eludes three- and even four-dimensional reality.
0: Okay, having cleared that up... (laughs) (laughs) Um, what the heck is going to happen in 2023 from very non-hyperdimensional perspectives? And we're going to get into those in the second hour with uh, Stephen and Barbara. Uh, I'm forecasting, and I've been pretty accurate on these on the political side, come to think of it, that 2023 could be gangbusters, could, be, could blow everybody's minds, blow their socks off. It could change the entire paradigm. Are we seeing any tremors in the force from an astrological perspective, for the next year,
1: we we certainly are, and I've been doing lectures recently and writing articles about 2023 because that's what what, what we astrologers do. And in a way, um, it's like we're finally being released <clears throat> from the swamp, the sludge, the molasses of um, of January, February, March of 2020. I mean, really. The, the astrological events that occurred at the beginning of 2020 set the stage for what, uh, for what occurred in 2020, 2021, and even into 2022. The eclipse, as we talked about a couple of months ago on, online here, Richard, the eclipse on Election Day um, in the United States, the uh, lunar eclipse, was, was a turning point, but with Mars retrograde even on Election Day – And Mercury now retrograde until mid-January. Mars turns direct the end of January or January 18th. Um, Mercury turns direct. Then Uranus, the last of the outer planets, which has been retrograding, turns direct. We're going to feel... It's almost like 2023 is here in name and number, and we're excited and we're jazzed, but we're frustrated because it ain't going to move as fast as we want it to. It's not going to be until... February, March, even late March, and April, when some very powerful ripples occur, Pluto leaves the sign of Capricorn and dips its toe into Aquarius. Uh, Pluto is the slowest moving of the astrological planets. Um, it's been in Capricorn for nearly 20 years, and as it moves into Aquarius it's in March, it's going to create major ripples. And then Saturn which is the planet of three-dimensional reality, of the limits of our sensory mechanisms, if you will, Um, Saturn um, moves into Pisces. It changes signs also in March. And so what happens is that even though the year has started, we're going to feel the thunder. We're going to feel the excitement beginning to manifest come March, April, And it really is going to take us through the summer, but there's a lot of change on the playing field from an astrological point of view. It's not as significant as new events happening based upon, how do I say this, based upon interactions between the planets. It's more that we're moving into new territory. It's like we're being ejected from whatever it was that we've been in for the past three plus years.
0: Hmm. So your completely separate approach from mine is converging. The 2023 beginning, like uh, early early spring, February March, is going uh, to, yeah. is really going maybe
1: to... even March maybe even March April. I think we'll feel some of it in February, but but again I think that we're going to still be a bit frustrated by it's not moving as fast as we thought it would. We're not moving. Uh, it feels like we're still maybe caught in a riptide that's pulling us backwards, but this is surface stuff. The deep currents right now are moving forward.
0: Wow. Now, can we say anything specific in terms of areas, subjects, people, uh, events? Mm, No.
1: (laughs) Great disappointment. Okay. Um, You know, it's reality unfolds In You know, according to um, very specific archetypes, but it does it in a multivalent manner, meaning that there's so many different ways in which an archetype can express. I think one of the dangers is putting too much uh, limitation on what unfolds. I mean, I can tell you that the energy is moving fast now, but on a personal level, we're not getting as far ahead as we think we might where we keep feeling like we're close we're close we're there and then we feel like we're, we're we've moved backwards a bit well is and that I can tell you that energetically by the end of march we're going to be on a rocket ship we're going to be going somewhere
0: oh my now is that because there is a time lag between consciousness which is not physical it's hyperdimensional and physical 3d reality biology chemistry uh just the normal physics of of inertia things proceed much faster at the level of mind and consciousness than in the real world
1: you know m- maybe but you you stated a principle that is actually something that i've talked about a lot um you you know what the lag of seasons is yeah sure astrologically we have that same thing when an event occurs and it almost takes um um, a few days, a week, a month, maybe even a few years sometimes on the more powerful, slower moving cycles for things to actually manifest from meta physical. Well, okay, well Georgia's gonna come
0: on George is gonna come is gonna come on the third hour and I'm sure she'll have something to say about this. But for those people who don't know what Rick just said in terms of <laughs> physics, real world I keep saying real world, I'm talking 3D.
1: Three-dimensional world. Yeah. yeah.
0: Because the Earth is basically a lot of water on the surface, huge oceans, very deep. When the sun hits the Earth, like, you know, bringing a kettle to boil on a stove, it takes a time lag between the time the heat input and the response of soaking up enough heat in the oceans to change the weather. And it's about a month. So, you know, your peak heating in the Northern Hemisphere, is August the actual summer heat really doesn't start hitting till late August September and winter the same way the the coldest months are not December uh, the shortest year the solstice when we get the least sunlight it's about right. January February because of this heat storage of the oceans so you're saying between the 3d reality of physics and matter and the hyperdimensional reality of consciousness and thought and inclination there is this lag very similar to the ocean lag on earth
1: i am saying that however that's more observable when it comes to um collective uh historical cultural geopolitical economic uh um, um effects when it comes to personal effects we often feel it m- much faster so that if it's just something that you are experiencing likely you're getting it almost right away. Whereas if we're talking about a revolution in a country that may be two or three months or even a year after the astrological event uh, event hits. But But I do think it's important to understand Richard that, that the reason why things won't really begin to uh, unfold at a, at a rapid rate until March is because Mars during if any planet during its retrograde period goes um, forward and then backward over a certain area and then forward over that area again. And until it's not just the fact that the planets are turning direct, Mercury and Mars, in January. It's going to take them until late February and the middle of March to get into new territory. Now, we astrologers call that the planetary shadow, the, uh, the retrograde shadow. And so between the between Mercury and Mars moving out of their shadows in late February and in March, and then the additional factor of Saturn, a slow thirty-year cycle, and Pluto, the slowest two hundred and fifty-year roughly cycle, that those two planets are changing signs. That those two planets are changing signs um, in March, and that will thrust us uh, forward.
0: So they're literally physically against the backdrop of the stars. They're changing signs, configurations, constellations, and these are like a sine wave. When you go from one sign to another, the sign sign goes positive, negative, positive, negative, um, in alternating fashion. Um, Now, in terms of this lag, is part of it due to the fact that there is, I would almost call it um, social inertia, In terms of consciousness, that those of us that are really tuned in, we're responding much quicker than the middle of the curve, which is watching networks, watching mainstream media, watching social media, talking to each other. Their realities are very different, and it takes time for changes to manifest when you have this huge social consciousness, which is basically inertially moving much slower.
1: You explained it very, very well, and when I teach this, it takes me an hour and a half to get to where you just got to in like, <laughs> in like one minute. But you, no, that's exactly correct. You, you got it.
0: So it's part of this. We're, we're manifesting realities, but more likely we're, we're literally not open as much as we should be to respond as quickly to new realities which are coming in from, cliched word, the ether.
1: Well that's true, and you know many of us are familiar with the work of Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the you know the structure of scientific revolution yep and and basically it's science which theoretically should adopt new ideas when they're experimentally proven, basically adopt new ideas while the old wave dies out.
0: <laughs> I am living proof of this because I have been talking for literally at least a decade, probably longer, about this dome wide lunar phenomenon all over the moon, this incredible layered glass ET super engineered structure. And I have people in our own ranks, other researchers saying, well, you know, it's hard to, 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 to believe. And it has, to me, it's not about belief. It's about looking at the data, but there's this incredible inertia because we've never encountered extraterrestrial super civilization technology before and as i keep saying now in the last few weeks what do we expect we go and find kmart no (laughs) you know arthur c clark any you know advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic or i can think of some other cliches you know sherlock holmes when you've eliminated the possible the only thing that remains is the impossible but there's huge inertia to get people to kind of switch gears and begin to consider the unbelievable as part of their normal reality.
1: It's true. You know the the thing about sufficiently advanced technologies being perceived as magic uh by by Arthur C. Clarke um uh, that that's that's Clarke's third law. Yep. And 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 as you may know he said, I'm stopping at three because it was good enough for the two Isaacs. <laughs> <laughs> and not everyone, I'm sure, would, would would get that or would understand that. He's referring to the three laws of motion by Isaac Newton and the three laws of robotics by Isaac Asimov.
0: Yes. Well, I knew one of them. <laughs> Unfortunately, I arrived too late to know the other one. So, yeah. OK, so we're we're dealing with this amorphous freight train coming at us. We know in the March-April timeframe, it's going to hit us. How is it going to affect different people? In other words, can where you put your consciousness reduce the shock? Is it going to be that much of a paradigm shift?
1: Yeah, I I think so, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know that it's going to happen all in March and April, but I think what's happening is that that, – there's you know there's been a bit of bifurcation obviously and it's not unlike the uh the bifurcation in the time machine where there's the eloy and the war, warlocks the the um um people who lived underground and and managed the machinery and the simple people who lived uh upstairs on the surface of earth in the garden of eden and in some ways we have gone through or are going through that kind of bifurcation and there's a whole portion of humanity that's basically saying hell no I won't go because it's a, they're fearful of this change that's so deep that's not just about ET it's about AI you know it's about it's about posthumanism it's about it's about evolution hitting the the fan you know and basically It's like a cancer metastasizing. It's like evolution has reached a breaking point where the complexity is going to do something that no one can quite put their finger on, um, at least in a rational basis. And because people are so afraid, yes, they're the ones that are going to suffer the most. You know, there are people who are already Um, you know, living in the future, so to speak. There are people who have embraced or accepted these changes that are unfolding, even though we don't even quite get the full, you know, uh, gist of of how big these changes are. But I think that the way in which we can best prepare ourselves and and strengthen uh, ourselves um, is to basically be adaptable is basically to be, you know, whether that is the, you know, announcement, you know, of full disclosure or whether it's uh some other new breakthrough that occurs, they're gonna occur rapidly throughout the year and I think we just need to kind of set our expectations aside and be open to it as it unfolds.
0: If I understand correctly, the Princeton experiment with the eggs was looking at random number generators meaning little digital devices that just spit out total randomness and they actually use some noise sources to 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 input those numbers and then when major world changing consciousness changing events occurred that random number generator would go less random and the computer's monitoring would signal that as a as a tremor in the force to use a Another cliche. What I'm wondering, because time now turns out to be incredibly malleable and, and mutable, whether that configuration of astrology, of the physics of the planets, of their relationship geometrically, which is what is modulating the background ether and consciousness, does that have premonitional shockwaves echoing back through time before the actual configurations arrive?
1: Uh, I I would answer undoubtedly. um, Although, uh, I mean, look, look, there is a whole um, branch of modern theoretical physics um, that has now entered into an experimental phase called retrocausation. And retrocausation is how does the future impact the present? How does the present impact the past?
0: Wow. Do we remember who's doing this? Because I've seen it somewhere, but I don't remember the specifics.
1: Well, one of the people who kind of led this whole thing in physics um, is this guy named Jack Sarfati. Do you know Oh,
0: Jack yeah, Sarfati? I know Jack yes, yes, yes
1: okay. So Jack Sarfati basically had this kind of in the spirit of the um, Einstein you know the the Copenhagen uh, um, thought experiments, he had this thing that um, that was that went like this. Imagine you're a 14-year-old boy sitting at home, your telephone rings, you pick it up, and it's you from 50 years in the future calling you to tell you what you need to do in order to get to where this consciousness is. Does that break any laws of physics? And he concluded, and Jack is is a brilliant mathematician, I mean, uh, I I, I know my math and he loses me by the third or fourth line of anything (laughs) he does. Um, but um, basically, he claimed that um, it does not break any laws of physics, and he was k- almost kind of laughed out of the American physics community. He ended up going to uh, um, to England, and uh, he taught physics under David Boehm at uh, um, uh, Bur- 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 I can't think of the name of the college. It'll come to me in a moment. Um, but um, but he kind of now is back in the United States and there's an entire, there's a, you know, annual retro causality, um, you know, um, conference of leading edge physicists. And basically it has something to do, uh, you know, with the same concept, that Stephen Hawking came up with to describe why black holes don't absorb everything, why magnetic radiation escapes from a black hole. It has to do with some form of quantum randomness. And again, the mathematics uh, evade me, but in answer to your question, I have no doubt at all that the future is constantly informing and creating the present. And in fact, as an astrologer, people say, can you change the future? And my kind of tongue-in-cheek answer is no, but you can change the past, which changes (laughs) the present, which alters the trajectory. And people go, go, wait, you can't change the past. And I say, you know, have you ever been in therapy? You know, that's what therapy does. You know, uh, what what about Columbus discovering America or the first Thanksgiving that you thought – or Santa Claus that you knew was true at one age, and now you have a different, you know, perspective – the past is just as flexible as the future.
0: How do you avoid the classic grandfather paradox, which is, you know, you have a time machine, you go back, you, you somehow wind up killing your grandfather. So your father's not born on your, on your father's side, then you're not born. But how could you then exist to go back and kill the guy who created you? In other words, how do you avoid the paradox?
1: Yeah, yeah, you've just stepped into my favorite realm of science fiction. <laughs>
0: oh i love time travel stories see the yeah, only way i, think, I can I think, think of I think it the
1: first really excellent one was by a tenured physics professor um 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 in uh uc irvine um and he wrote a book called timescape it was probably like 1975 or 76 was that benford was, huh?
0: was that greg benford
1: yeah yeah okay yeah, I mean a brilliant hardcore yes, definitely and hard science fiction writer.
0: Again, how in this model do we avoid the paradox? Unless, I, unless go
1: ahead, I don't know.
0: Well, suppose reality is not just one reality; it branches, which is another model in mainstream quantum physics, and every reality is separate. So you can, in different timelines, go back and kill your grandfather. Or, you know, do something that winds up with his death, but it doesn't affect your timeline. It affects the one you do it in.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know how that works, but that's a good, easy way out. <laughs>
0: well, but it's also buttressed by a lot of other data that we're not living in just one universe. There are yeah. multiple parallel universes mm-hmm. and, they're, and they diverge from what we think of as reality almost like moving across a phonograph record and the farther you get from the center of the hole the more different the music is in a crude analogy mm-hmm yeah
3: yeah uh richard uh rick yeah that's ron
0: ron Gerbron, i believe
3: yeah i was well as usual richard you're hitting the same questions that i would have asked if uh i I'd been there, but it is the, the crux of the grandfather par- paradox was it came from a time when they didn't really take the idea of uh, parallel timelines very seriously. And so that it was, you know, it was assumed that you would go back to the same timeline you came from. But uh, nowadays, all the cool kids are thinking uh, the, <laughs> um, well, you could call it the Avengers solution because that was the way they resolved their time paradoxes and there, and it's true. Your timeline continues from wherever you are. That's yeah. the forward direction. It's not necessarily the forward or backward direction of the main timeline that you came from. You have created another one there. The old idea was that everything that happened in a slightly different way through the forces of randomness uh, or whatever would be another timeline. And the new one is that you have to initiate it. It's your fault. You know that there's a new uh, timeline. The it, potential for it is you, there. It, Even when you say
0: it's to, your you, fault, you mean you have to intentionally decide you're going to jump timelines somehow.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. You I'm have to take wild. the responsibility. Who's, who is talking? I know we're on the radio. Oh, that's show. That,
3: that, that, that's Ron. Oh, Gerber. Hi, Rick. It's Ron. I just wanted to talk in a question. I didn't want to take it over. Go back to whatever. Go back to whatever you were saying. <laughs> Rick Glass. No, who's Ron? Oh, Ron Gerbron. He's one of
0: our Enterprise Mission researchers who's been on research,
2: more than you have.
0: Ah, okay, it,
1: good. Uh, I wasn't, doubting his, uh, yeah. I wasn't yeah. doubting his credibility I mean, here I'm on the radio. Several, I was just wondering who I was yeah. with.
0: Several years okay. ago, apropos what Ron was going to say, and he'll be back, you know, shortly, um, Robin and I experienced something which has to be crossing timelines because we were in, at this conference in Arizona And she, we had Morala with us, uh, who was our dog. And, you know, when you have a dog with you, you have to pay attention to dog and not much else, particularly with Mm -hmm. Morala, who was very independent minded. Anyway, we went back to the room and she found that she left her pocketbook uh, in the dining room. So I went back to the dining room and the staff looked and I looked and we couldn't find the pocketbook anywhere. And they were, the cleaning crew was coming out and all that. And I went back and I said, well, obviously somebody stole it. So this made for a very bad night, all right? You can imagine. Next morning, we go to the dining room, sit down at the same table, because, you know, you kind of mark out your favorite spaces. Territory. Yeah. yeah. And there under the table was her pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And there's no way I can explain that in any 3D scenario, scenario, because the cleaning crew, if they'd found it, they would have turned it in. Uh, everything was in it. Nothing had been taken. It was there wait sitting, waiting to be discovered by us the next morning. It happens a lot. You know, when you it misplay- does.
1: It happens more than we realize.
0: When you misplace something, I mean, you becoming a running joke. We've misplaced something. We both say to each other, well, just wait. It will turn up. And lo and mm-hmm. behold, it turned up. And it's like we were moving like the head on a, on a computer disk, Or a needle on an old-fashioned vinyl record From one track to another track to another track Where in some of those tracks the thing was not there In other tracks or our original, our home track We were back where it was normal And I have no idea whether that's real or Memorex or whatever Okay, we're at the top of the hour My guest this morning is Rick Levine I believe we're going to have to goodnight him We'll do that with a little ceremony at the top of the hour You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, January 1, 2023. Steve Bassett has joined us. Uh, Rick, I understand that uh, you have some other commitments, so you need to take your leave. I want to thank you so much for this preview. I wish it could have been a little more specific, but I'm sure a lot of your uh, customers and clients say that.
1: Well, how about when I'm back on in April and we're talking about, oh, my God, look how it's unfolded?
0: Oh, by all means, we will make a date for random multiple timeline confusion. (laughs) I like it. Okay. All right. Good night. Happy New Year.
1: Thank you very much. Always good to chat with you, Richard.
0: Thank you, Rick. Happy New Year. Mr. Bassett, are you with us? I hear Stephen.
3: Okay.
0: Okay. So, um, obviously, I have a little uh, thing to fill here. Keith, why don't you tell me in the window when Stephen is available? Um, Let me go back to my radio with pictures, uh, which is useful that I have loaded. If you go back to Richard. um, Okay, so Stephen is here. Let me find out. Stephen, are you with us? Steven?
1: Got to get set up on
3: Bluetooth.
0: Okay, Steven is not here. Uh, not here yet. Okay. So let me let me continue what I was going to say. If you go back to Radio with Pictures, remember, under the banner on the guest page at the top, you see a bunch of names. Mine, Levine, Stevens, Andrew, etc. Click on my name. That takes you to my section. Um, two items, five and six. Five is a tabulation courtesy of NBC of all the missions which are heading toward the moon tonight um, they've been launched uh, the obvious uh, uh, way to do this is to launch as a uh, slow boat to China so you save the energy you save the gas it takes the months to get there even though the moon is only a quarter million miles away but it takes months and months and months uh, there are several missions. There is the Haokutu-R mission from Japan. This is a commercial lunar lander capable of deploying multiple payloads on the surface. In this test mission, the lander will attempt to deploy a rover called Rashid from the United Arab Emirates as part of the this Arab nation's first lunar mission. Now, remember, the UAE already has sent a a Mars mission to orbit Mars and returning amazing data on the climate and weather. Uh, It it was launched, the uh, uh, Haukutu R mission from Japan, on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket uh, a couple months ago, and it is scheduled to reach the surface of the moon in April. Now, let's go back to what Rick just said. He said that the You Know What's going to hit the rotating kitchen appliance in March, April. Well, if some of these non-governmental missions make it down through the layers of glass to reach the surface of the moon, you can imagine that their data, their imaging, their science, as they report it, if they report it honestly, is going to basically bust the paradigm wide open because they're going to show us with multiple different sources and cameras, what's actually circling the moon, covering the moon in various layers of incredible uh, disrepair because of eons of meteor, uh, micrometeorite bombardment. Okay, um, there's another mission, which kind of uh, hooked uh, a free ride on the lunar, uh, on the Hayukutu mission. It's called Lunar Flashlight, the spacecraft will not go down to the surface it will go into orbit in a polar orbit using layers lasers rather to search for water in the craters at the moon's south pole the model is these craters are permanently in shadow and have not seen sunlight in billions of years well you know what i think they're really doing i think these are secret missions designed with a variety of technologies to probe the extent of the surviving lunar glass which is densest over the poles we'll talk about that with some show and tell a bit later and so you have to unlike the indians who tried to land a spacecraft in 2019 which crash landed because they didn't take uh, uh you know warnings about the glass seriously and they basically you can see it in the data they literally hit the layers on the way down and they bounced and then they crashed so hopefully The uh, lunar flashlight uh, spacecraft and the Hakutu-R lander will not make the same mistakes, and the flashlight orbiter will help the uh, uh, lander land down through a hole. There are holes. And particularly, I want to very much emphasize that the glass density and the number of holes on the near side, the side we can see, there's almost no glass left on the side facing the Earth. The heavy glass is at the poles and on the far side, and that's where the Chinese technology of going vertically straight down, as opposed to the Indians, of moving laterally through many, many tens of degrees, uh, coming in almost horizontally. They obviously hit a chunk, whereas the uh, Chinese were able to luckily get down through a hole. There is another mission from India called Chandrayaan-3, That will involve their GSLV Mark III heavy lift launch vehicle propelling a landing module and robotic rover toward the moon, launching in June of this year. The uh, rover will carry a seismometer, a heat flow experiment, and spectrometers, and will also be aimed at the lunar south pole, hopefully from their um, uh, previous experience, which was catastrophic. They will have learned their lesson, and they, in fact, are not going to repeat the mistake. They will take account of the glass. They will look at the data coming back from the uh, uh, Denuri mission or the Artemis mission that just returned home, and they will take appropriate precautions to try to land through a hole in the glass. Okay, I believe now that we have uh, Stephen connected. Let me turn up a pot and see. Stephen, are you with us? Mr. Bassett, I don't hear anything. I would unmute. That'd be useful. I'm hearing switching. I don't hear you. Can you give us a count? The Mercury retrograde. Rick, darn it. (laughs) Good grief. Richard? I can hear you. I can hear. Well, I hear somebody. Is that wrong?
3: Yeah, that's just me. I'm just saying, I could hear some of the background chatter while I was waiting here, and uh, he's having trouble, I think, with his Bluetooth connection.
1: Uh-oh. Yeah, he can't hear us. Oh, uh, boy. We
3: could hear him. I had to mute him, but he can't that's... hear us for some reason. Okay. I mean, as soon as he gets like that fixed, he should be able to come in.
0: Yeah. All right, until we can figure out the wiring and that Mercury Retrograde is really manifesting tonight. Uh, why don't we try going with Barbara Honiger?
5: Well, what a good idea.
0: <laughs> well, I want both of you to address the uh, issues of politics and the next year. And there are some developments that you uh, need to report. Let me give you a little uh, kind of a brief intro here. For all these people, I'm going to be giving a very, very abbreviated uh, background because they have, you know, credits and honors and accomplishments that are would take an entire three hours to do it all. Barbara is a um, formerly a high-level government position. She held this position in the White House under the Reagan administration. She was special assistant to the president for domestic policy. She is current director of the Attorney General's Law Review. I'm sorry, she was then uh, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice. And for more than a decade, she was a senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School which is the premier science, technology, and national security affairs research university of the Department of Defense. And switching ahead to the current position, I believe you are the current chairman of the lawyers for 9-11 Truth. Is that correct?
5: I'm chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And very exciting if everybody goes to my items for tonight's show. I was able to add at the last minute item number four under my items. And um, you will be able to watch our litigation director, Attorney Mick Harrison, uh, reached over 10 million people today, this morning, on January 1st kicking off the Lawyers Committee's New Year with a bang um, on the George Galloway program in the UK that reaches, he claims, over 11 million people worldwide. Um, so that's very, very exciting. And the um, the subject um, is a very historic uh, case. The most important case, arguably, of the Lawyers' Committee on behalf of 9-11 victims' family members, the Lawyers' Committee architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, Richard Gage, um, uh, first responders, um, family members of first responders at Ground Zero who died as a result of the toxic dust, etc. Our case on the World Trade Center grand jury petition is right now before the Supreme Court, and in five days, on January 6th, they're holding a conference to decide whether to accept our case. It's called a CERT conference. And um, so Mick Harrison went into the history of that historic case and why it's of critical foundational relevance to every single American in this country. So, um, yes, and the other thing in my bio you didn't mention uh, is that I did earn the first ever accredited, fully accredited, uh, graduate degree in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology in the world. And that was at John F. Kennedy University in June of 1981. So I had to leave my desk at the White House and fly back to California to get my degree on the stage with Manley Hall. And the reason that I mention that is I'd like to comment on some things that your first guest said. I think that's Rick Levine, right?
0: Well, absolutely. And you have a, a foot in both universes or timelines yeah. or whatever, so by all means.
5: Well, I think I think uh, both reincarnations within a single lifetime is the way, <laughs> the way I think about it. Um, but, I, but I would like to say that um, when I was in the... JFK University, John F. Kennedy University graduate program in Consciousness Studies and Experimental Parapsychology, which was from 1978 to 1981 when I got my degree. Um, It was a night school for uh, working adults. And I was living in San Francisco and went over to JFK University in Orinda, California at night to get my degree over quite a period of time. And at that time, I knew everybody in the field, including Robert John, uh, of course, Hal Putoff and um, Russell Target, SRI, and Uri Geller, and all of the incredible psychics that they study there. And I just like to let people know that one of the major reasons—and this is surprising. Um, You would expect that the government, which the CIA and the NSA and the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, they all funded the work on remote viewing at, which we used to call clairvoyance, at Stanford Research International, SRI, which was put off into our group, their research project. It was funded by the government, and it was uh, secretly funded by the government at that time. But most people don't know that one of the major reasons the government was interested was not necessarily to develop people's psychic ability, but to try to figure out how to block it.
3: Oh.
5: To try to, think, for instance, uh, if you were a Soviet spy who had psychic abilities, they wanted to know how to block uh, that, that psychic from finding out what we knew. But most importantly, Uri Geller told me this in person over dinner one night in New York City. And I learned that when he had said publicly and in his book, uh, in his books that he wrote and in Suharic's book called Uri, uh, you learn that he was dedicated to trying to prevent Armageddon, to trying to prevent nuclear war. One of the ways that he had in mind to try to do that would be to prove to the government that there was that uh, the two men in missile silos that are missile silos in montana um, could if they had psychic abilities psychokinetic abilities, they could actually bend one of the one or both of the dual keys and prevent a missile
0: from being uh, shot. Oh my off. gosh, so what an idea
5: there was both There was both an offensive and a defensive reason for um, studying psychic abilities with people like uri geller and the major one counterintuitively maybe but not if you really carefully think about it was the defensive one to try to prevent the soviets and anybody else from being able to use psychic abilities to spy on us or bend our
0: dual keys Mm. in our missile silos. Well, this is something. Anyway, I just wanted... No, no, this is very, this is very important because it tallies in with something I've been thinking about and looking at seriously for several years. When I discovered the work of Nikolai Kozarev, who was a preeminent Russian physicist who did stunning, pioneering work in torsion field physics, hyperdimensional physics, uh, which, of course, I think is the background for everything we're talking about tonight. Uh, one of the things he discovered was there is a category of materials which could be used to screen torsion field activity, which includes things like psionics and telepathy and precognition and all those parapsychological uh, terms, which are part of the uh, ether interface between our timeline, our dimension, and higher dimensional state spaces, Okay. And once you discover, once he discovered and then, you know, made public the idea that there are certain materials which can be used as a screen, that takes, right. us, that takes us into the very cliched 1950s idea of people wearing tinfoil hats.
5: I was just going to say
0: that. To be, because aluminum and aluminum oxide, because of But it the,
2: actually works.
5: It
0: actually works, yes. So it has to do what's called the isomer spins in the nucleus of the aluminum atom and its various isotopes. Okay, now we fast forward the film. And in the 1980s and 90s, there was this sudden awareness on the part of bright people that someone was chemtrail spraying the skies over North America, Europe, the Far East, South, all over. By using fleets of tankers to dump stuff out the back to create contrails, not water condensation contrails, but chemical contrails designed to do something in the upper atmosphere around 40,000 feet of the earth. And there turned out to have been a memo out of the NASA Lewis Research Center, which we tracked down when I was doing a lot of work on the Art Bell show said that it was part of a geoengineering effort to basically cause a smoke screen in the upper atmosphere to reflect solar heat so that the global warming from too much CO2 would not overwhelm humankind. But there's something about that model that just not ring right to me. So I kept looking and looking and looking, and then I found what the primary compound is of the so-called chemtrail spraying. It's aluminum. It's aluminum. Aluminum oxide. So what if the program is designed to basically screen the planet, all the consciousness on Earth from the torsion field interactions with ETs, with higher level consciousness, with anything in other dimensions, by basically creating an aluminum spray screen?
5: So that's one possibility. I believe uh, Steve Barrett is available now?
0: Mr. Bassett, are you there?
5: Mr. Bassett?
0: Mr. Bassett, not yet.
2: Oh, okay.
5: Mercury,
0: Mercury Retrograde is really... By the way, um, <laughs> the Lawyers Committee interview with uh, the mother of all talk shows, George Galloway, uh, yeah. it's item number one. The Lawyers Committee... Oh, that's
5: right. It's not number four. I made it number one at the last yeah. minute.
0: The Lawyers yeah. Committee <laughs> Litigation we Director, see, Mick Harrison. We...
5: Our litigation...
0: But well, we've lost you on Skype. Oh, it's only
5: twenty three minutes.
0: Okay. Keep talking. You lost me. Now can you're back.
5: Oh, oh I didn't know I was lost to begin with.
0: You've been you've been fading in and out, yes. And well, we're having was and true. we're that having
2: screwed you earlier as
5: well.
0: Here in New it Mexico we have another problem. We're having a tremendous ice storm which has turned to sleet. I can hear it slashing at the windows, which means my antennas for the Skype link May go out at any minute. I mean, someone's determined that we're not going to do our New Year's show tonight. Apparently.
5: Well, we've, we've beat the odds so far. So far. Um, yeah, we beat the odds so far. So um, you wanted to talk politics in the news?
0: Well, I we're springboarding from the whole nine eleven issue. I find the date when they're going to have this hearing, January sixth. January
5: sixth of all dates. Which is an
0: incredible, you know. Remember Roosevelt, Live in Infamy? Well, that date to do this hearing, which has to do with inside job manipulation of the whole 9-11 scenario, it's somehow eerily, incredibly eerily appropriate, I think.
2: Yes, it is. Um,
5: I I should say that um, I hope everybody uh, actually... Watches those 23 minutes. It's it's the best uh, interview that uh, Mick Harrison, our Lawyers Committee litigation director, has ever done, um, and that's that's in part because George Galloway, who who claims to reach 11 million people worldwide, I believe him, and probably a lot more than that. You know, when people forward links and such, um, George Galloway just let Mick. He, he was he asked very cogent questions. Make, made very cogent comments, but basically let Mick uh lay out the whole uh the whole issue uh before the Supreme Court right now and in a nutshell and, and you know this could this could actually break around the time of March April. Um because the um the conference that the Supreme Court is holding on January sixth, which is five days from now only Um, It's not just about our case, it's about the other cases that have been presented uh, to the Supreme Court asking them to take them up. Now, last year, they only took up less than 1%, about 75 or so cases out of over 8,000 that were requested to be taken. So we have to be uh, realistic about our chances, but um, if the case were taken up, it would have massive implications. And I'm just hoping that uh, Rick Levine said your uh, prediction that something major is going to, going to break in the spring uh, would be that they decide to take up our case.
0: I would think that would qualify as a major paradigm shift, because if it legitimized the idea that inquiry has to look outside the box for outside the box solutions to outside the box problems, it would represent a major um you know footstep along the right path and it was set a precedent for a whole bunch of other inquiries having nothing to do with 911
2: well yes and
5: specifically so because as fate would have it um, our case actually is of central foundational importance to any american citizen going forward who wants to bring or tries to bring evidence of serious crimes through a U.S. attorney to any criminal grand jury in the country. And because the district court and the appeals court uh, unconscionably ruled that even 9-11 victims, family members, which are some of our plaintiffs in the case, do not have standing to ask, the to demand, that the US attorney in the Southern District of New York, which is the jurisdiction for the World Trade Center attacks on 9-11, that the US attorney does not have to forward anything by any citizen of evidence of, of crimes to any grand jury, not just ours. So this is a foundational case for the power of citizens to get evidence of crimes into the actual hands of the grand jury. And to cut out the middleman, the U.S. attorney, who for decades now have been uh,
0: gatekeepers. So this would become pro forma in law? It would be automatic in terms of referral?
5: Well, (laughs) the fascinating thing about our case, Richard, is that there's already a federal statute, a federal law, that makes it mandatory, not discretionary but mandatory for evidence of crimes given by any citizen to any U.S. attorney in the country that that U.S. attorney must, must underlined forward them to a criminal grand jury. Wasn't, the, they was, 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 to tell us.
0: wasn't this the basis of the suit you brought through the Southern District some years ago?
5: That is this suit, Richard. It's ah. now before the Supreme Court.
0: Wow. Now... All right, I want you to put on your paranormal hat.
5: Uh-oh.
0: T- take off your political hat, put on the paranormal hat.
5: No, they, they can be the same, actually.
0: What do you think? Well, one checks the other. What do you think this court's going to do with this?
5: Well, I mean, if we, if we look at the statistics, they probably simply will, we will just be one of the 99% of cases they just don't, don't take and they don't give you a reason. They will tell us if they're going to uh, take it up or not. Uh, they won't necessarily do that on January 6th or even shortly thereafter. Um, one of the main reasons that Nick Harrison, our litigation director mentioned on the George Galloway program this morning, which is important, is that the um, uh, the plaintiffs or excuse me, the defendants in the case, in this case, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney in Southern District of New York, um, they have a the option of They had the option already when we filed our petition for cert asking for the case to be taken up. They had the option of replying to our quite long and detailed evidentiary-based filing, our petition. And they chose not to say a word. Um, so if the court does decide to, before the court even decides to take up our case, they could on January 6th, they could decide to go back to the U.S. Attorney's Office and say, look, you've got to reply to this, and then we'll decide.
0: Wow. So we're yeah. really on a kind of a countdown. And you, say, you, you, you say this will be introduced formally <clears throat> on the 6th of the hearing, but we won't know for maybe weeks or even months, right? We
5: we don't know exactly when we will know.
0: Well, the time lag between January 6th and End of April or March. End of a- uh, end of March, uh, April. That's about the right, wouldn't you say, time frame?
5: It could be. I mean, it's just a guess that that might be it. What's fascinating is when folks watch uh, your members of your audience watch the interview in my number one in my items uh, today with George Galloway in the UK. Um, at the very end of that interview, he leans towards the camera and he says, "This could be the most important." that happens on Earth.
0: Wow. My guest filling in for Steve Bassett, we're still trying to connect with Stephen and we're having problems uh, logistically at all three ends of this uh, multi-continental wire. It's actually not a wire, but uh, that's a metaphor. Uh, Is Barbara Honiger, who was a senior policy uh, individual in the Reagan White House, is current chairman of the board of the... uh, uh, lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and is reported on some extraordinary news which will come to fruition one way or the other in 2023. And I would think that that's because of the doors it will open. Uh, Galloway's comment uh, seems appropriate. This could be the, or certainly up there, one of the most important decisions. In uh, modern civilization's lifetime, because it opens the door to people regaining the power of real democracy and accountability. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, I'm going to uh, turn the attention to the UFO UAP phenomenon. And if we can't connect with Stephen, uh, Barbara has some important words to say about that. And then I have something from an editorial that uh, Stephen sent around earlier that I'm going to read from. So he will be with us in spirit and in word, if not in actuality. But let's cross our fingers and pray that Mercury retrograde does not interfere too much longer. We shall return.
4: the other side of midnight.com. Tune in and listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day.
2: Thought Radio at the cutting
4: edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Yes, this is music from uh, Anino Maraconi, the original score, Mission to Mars, which is uh, sometimes very appropriate. It kind of sounds like a countdown. Well, we're doing a countdown. Is Stephen going to, you know, outwit all the gremlins and all the Mercury retrograde problems of the physics tonight and be able to join us? Or will I have to uh, kind of communicate some of what he was going to talk about uh, in Ascensio? But fortunately, we've got Barbara with us, and Barbara's area of expertise and interest overlaps this part of our uh, conversation tonight. Barbara, I want you to talk about what could happen in 2023, now that the President of the United States has formally signed into law the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, which contains crucial language, encoding into law what basically is a kind of an open door to interior government activities and contractor activities in the entire area of ETs, UFOs, UAPs, and what NASA has really discovered in the solar system.
5: Right. Um, I'm going to answer that question, but I just want to close the loop. Okay. Um, On what we were discussing just before the break, I started talking and he said he can't hear you. (laughs) Um, I just want everybody to know that uh, it's likely that the Supreme Court will not take up our case. Of course, we want them to. But if they don't, uh, we're not going to give up. There are many other venues that we will then follow up, uh, including uh, New York City, New York State, courts, um, D.C., uh, U.S. Attorney in D.C., many other venues. We're not going to give up, but we, of course, hope. We're already before the Supreme Court in our big case, and we hope that they will take it up and that, of course, it will then be argued and that we would win. So I just wanted to close the circle on Sometime before I leave, I'm going to answer your question here in a second, but we do need to talk about the uh, reaching for the stars. Um,
0: yeah, why don't we do that next? Because next weekend we're going to do a whole show devoted to this, And so we should probably give an appropriate background. Barbara has been very busy. Are we going to identify the donor of this extraordinary gift?
5: Sure, that's fine.
0: Okay. Uh, Barbara has reached into her own pocket and she has purchased an Alan Bean lithograph. And you can say, well, you know, lithographs are a dime a dozen. Turns out this was part of a limited edition, 1500 printed according to the uh, publisher, uh, but what makes this incredibly unique is that 24 astronauts, both from the Apollo program, the shuttle program, Mercury, Gemini, 24 astronauts in total, physically signed this lithograph of one of Alan Bean's most interesting and important and inspirational paintings. And what Barbara is doing is offering a offering this amazing item to the other side of Midnight, to the Enterprise Mission, so we can use it as a fundraiser to basically bankroll the crucial political things we're going to have to do in 2023 to make sure that disclosure really happens. So you want to take it from there?
5: Right, that's correct. So um, we don't need to go in this anymore except to have people go to my items. And I believe it's, it's one of the items. It's obvious. I don't know which number it is. I don't have it up. I, I only have four items. So it's it's item two number three- two. Okay. Item number two, you will be able to see that uh, amazing uh, print of uh, by Alan Bean called Reaching for the Stars. And I understand that that is that a huge mural of that very painting was chosen by Alan Bean to be the mural at, Uh, NASA headquarters and I'm guessing though I don't know I'm trying to find out that there was an event that Ellen Dean attended
1: where the
5: astronauts were all invited and that would be why this print is signed by all of them that they came to that dedication of the mural that is my guess but anyway we're uh, next Saturday uh, on your show we're going to have a segment where uh, we discuss the uh, how to structure the fundraising campaign to raise the most funds for the enterprise mission, uh, and um, the winner, if you will, uh, we we'll talk about what that would entail to be the winner. But the winner who makes the largest donation over a period of time uh, towards a preset goal uh, that we will discuss what that goal should be, the total dollar amount. That uh, my idea is, is that the largest donor once that number is reached, uh, would receive the the signed print. So it's not only by L and b but also by twenty three or twenty four months. And by number two you can see the name.
0: Whoops. Barbara And you can there see you are. You're
5: the, back. Uh, the uh the margin. Yeah, you're
0: you're what? you're fading in and out because sky communication is terrible. Terrible tonight and the weather here is not helping
5: what people could or couldn't hear, but detailed how to structure the fundraising drive so that everybody can, can give us their ideas for, to raise maximum amount of funds, making this amazing uh, print by Alan Bean available 23 or 24 astronauts.
0: See, the thing that's so interesting is of all the astronauts that you could have picked, Bean obviously is the guy who has blown the whistle on what the real moon is like. And his body of work as a whole, to say nothing of a a piece of his his artwork, which actually has been signed by all the other members, 24 of them, not all, but most of them at that time, uh, members of the Astronaut Corps, it's going to become incredibly valuable because every Bean work, given his role in history, his role in revealing what's really there, and all the stunning implications of having ET structures available to current human primitive rocket technology just three days away, all of that is going to come out of the closet and is going to wind up, you know, like one of these long lost Rembrandts or Monet's or, or uh, you know, any other, uh, any major artist who has been dead X number of years and whose work is appreciated This is a unique time in human history where if you invest in this particular work, we can see in the real world politics from the the, the, South Korean imaging alone. At some point, this is going to become known globally and then beans art as visionary, as prophecy, as testimony to an incredible future is going to simply in real world terms appreciate astronomically and whoever is in a position to make the right bid for this uh you know uh, beating the reserve amount etc they are going to be holding a piece of history that will only appreciate with time and there are few other times when you can say that with some certitude based on other events going on around the world So that's kind of backdrop. We'll do a much fuller uh, discussion and layout of what we're planning to do uh, next Saturday. We're going to return to the moon and who knows by that time uh, what's going to have happened with the uh, South Korean mission and what other astonishing leaks uh, they are going to uh, uh, have have given us. So let us segue to the extraterrestrial uh, idea and let's talk about this NDAA because Uh, I found it very curious. Today is is January 1, right, Barbara? Correct. (laughs) The spacecraft uh, from from Artemis 1, the unmanned Orion spacecraft, splashed down about two weeks ago, uh, 300 miles south of San Diego, was collected by the U.S. Navy, brought to shore, was offloaded from uh, the ship onto the dock and then onto a truck, And has been making its way, uh, I talk about slow boats to China all the time, making its way by convoy on a truck on a flatbed with tarps over it and guards for the last two weeks from California to the Cape. I find it fascinating that on January 1, this afternoon, the spacecraft, which contains all kinds of original data, including incredible 4K color stunning high resolution video of the moon as seen from Orion. That all physically arrived at the Cape literally on the first day of the new year. And do you think that's just a coincidence?
5: It's very auspicious positively (laughs) speaking. Okay.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about this NDAA and what it could release.
5: Well, um, of course, I don't personally know. I don't have a crystal ball. But... Um, I think the important thing about the NDAA, in conjunction with an executive order or some kind of an order that has been published in the, uh, talked about in the New York Times a number of times, and I've mentioned it on previous recent shows, um, the NDAA, portions of it now, um, uh, make it uh, open the door completely um, to impunity by any Person In the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, uh, defense or intelligence contractors, that whole kind of national security infrastructure of the deep state, for any person who has any information that would be about or related to UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, they now have absolute immunity to come forward, and they're, in fact, encouraged. They don't have to. But they're encouraged by this new grant of immunity to come forward uh, to this new special office that's been set up in uh, the, uh, I think it's the Intelligence Office of the Army, isn't
0: it? Well, the Pentagon has set up this special office, which involves multiple branches and multiple divisions within the Pentagon itself. It's really a multidisciplinary approach to figuring out and making public what UAP really is, and there had been some uh, uh, comments from some of those inside that uh, some folks were being less than forthcoming about that at this point.
5: Right. That was that's what Steve Bassett would hopefully can still talk about. Um, he knows about that more than I do for sure. Um, but you you have to marry that uh, with the fact that about three weeks ago now, as I recall, time flies, but about that. You know, certainly within the last month, uh, the New York Times reported that Biden uh, put out an order, uh, presumably an executive order. It didn't say explicitly, but but put out an order from the White House that uh, as, as long as he is president, however long that is still, uh, that, the, um, that the government, he has ordered the Justice Department uh, no longer to uh, go after any member of the media who makes public uh, even classified information that they have received. And uh, this should apply to Julian Assange. I don't know if it will apply retroactively, but I would expect and hope that it would. And so if you put that together with the fact that anybody who knows anything about uh, UAPs or anything related inside the government... Uh, or even military intelligence contractors now have this immunity provision to come forward to this special interdisciplinary uh, new office in the Pentagon. Uh, And you put that together with the fact that whoever that is who has the courage to come forward and do that can also uh, hop over to the Washington Post. And the Washington Post reporters and editors and owners now know that they won't be touched as long as Biden's in office.
0: And the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Fox well. News. And in, in other words, all the mainstream press, like they did with the Pentagon Papers, if they want to get a corner on history, find sources who are willing now, with evidence, to talk. Um, yeah, it doesn't
5: have to be a mainstream. It could be alternative and particularly high-level alternative press like Politico. Um, which uh, political or BuzzFeed, they
0: you know. Yeah, well, those are kind of considered mainstream. I'm, I'm thinking of really off the track, you know, alternative media, which we'll not attention to. It's got to be in the mainstream for the culture to pay attention.
5: It, it's got to be in the mainstream, a very high level, uh, alternate, so-called alternative press that the mainstream will then
0: pick up. Yeah. And, of course, the uh, the carrot at the end of the, of the rainbow, mixing our metaphors, madly, is a Pulitzer Prize. You know, look at how they've been dogged on, on Trump. And uh, unless Trump actually took UFO materials with him to Mar-a-Lago, which is one of my offbeat scenarios that he did this basically. To keep Uh-oh, him. I
5: can't hear you now.
0: Uh-oh. Can you hear me now? Barbara? Uh,
5: you're back, yeah.
0: That's weird. You're this, back, yeah. This is so weird. Anyway, um, we got about 15 minutes left in this segment, so let me do this. Let me read some of what uh, – uh stephen published since we're having terrible problems connecting with him tonight he's in los angeles who knows you know what the problems are in terms of circuits or or you know landmines or non-landmines um he he released this statement earlier which is uh part of a statement by christopher mellon do you know who mellon is barbara because i forget which government branch high level well,
5: I, I can't recall the precise government branch he was with um, To The Stars Academy.
0: Yeah, but he actually is part of either the State Department or the intelligence community or some inside group. And I forget which part of the government, the federal government, he was attached to. But he issued his own statement, and uh, it's very appropriate that uh, Stephen should have sent that around. Yes, and that I can't was... hear you. That's so weird. I'm doing nothing. I'm just sitting here talking. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, I can Okay, so my Skype is fading in and out, too. Okay, well, let me read you what Stephen said in uh, in this statement earlier this week. This statement, just released by Christopher Mellon, a few days before the 118th Congress begins, is a manifesto of intent to see the resolution of the UAPET issue in 2023. Mr. Mellon published his statement shortly after Captain Robert Salas confirmed he and other nuclear weapons tampering witnesses were asked to meet with the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, that's this Pentagon office devoted now to these studies, regarding UAP related to shutdowns of U.S. ICBMs. In particular, it is gratifying to read as it confirms the scenario that I, that's Stephen Bassett, can't have, hear you have been relaying to the public in hundreds of interviews over the past 4 years and so what follows and i don't know whether this is universal or only barbara can't hear me uh keith I can send, hear you now.
5: Keith,
0: you can uh okay um your connection uh it may be it may be your connection so what you might want i wanna...
4: think it is barbara because i have heard you consistently
0: Okay, well that's nice okay, to know. Go, go, ahead,
3: go ahead.
0: We're gonna retitle this program "Mercury Retrograde Dog Stand in a Corner." Okay. Anyway,
3: yeah, I've been able to hear. It. I've been able to hear it too.
0: Super. Okay. This is from Christopher Mellon. You, I mean. I thank you. Who I think is uh, was with the uh, either State Department or the CIA. I'm not quite sure, but he's in a position. He's been part of this whole UAP disclosure movement since the New York Times did the famous article on the Nimitz back in uh, 2017, and this is what Mellon has now put on the record. Quote:
3: Richard, former former Deputy Assistant Director of Defense.
0: Former Deputy Assistant Director of Defense, which is the Department of Defense, which means he's a Pentagon guy, and they are the ones that know where all the bodies have been buried. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. This is Mellon's statement as of December 29th. I'm writing to correct the record after a series of misleading articles on the UAP issue by Holman Jenkins, Jr. of the Wall Street Journal. Specifically, I want to correct Mr. Jenkins' assertion that, quote, the UFO commotion has largely been sustained by the U.S. defense establishment, as well as his suggestion that interest in the UAP issue is a result of, quote, intelligence officials who think their job includes promoting false and tendentious information to the American public for their own purposes. His claim, that's Jenkins, that DOD has recently found conventional explanations for most of the hundreds of UAP reported recently by U.S. military personnel is also dubious. Again, I'm reading from Christopher Mellon's statement, from December 29th. First of all, quoting again, it is not clear to me what, quote, commotion Mr. Jenkins is referring to since the American press has of late been observing a near total blackout on coverage of the UAP issue. For example, last week, Barbara, this refers to what you were just saying, last week, President Biden signed into law unprecedented legislation regarding UAP that could conceivably real proof of an extraterrestrial presence on earth. Yet not a word of this incredible bipartisan effort has been reported by any of America's leading networks or newspapers. So to begin with, there is, if anything, a lack of UAP press coverage rather than a surplus. Furthermore, Mellon continues, what limited press coverage we've seen lately has been negative, seeking to belittle and discredit the UAP issue, specifically the possibility that some UAP could represent alien technology. Examples of such reporting include Mr. Jenkins' recent articles at the Wall Street Journal Another op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by UAP skeptic Seth Shostak, which incidentally falsely claims astronomers never report UAP. And finally, a New York Times op-ed published by Julian Barnes in October, claiming that anonymous DOD officials have found explanations for, quote, most recent UAP reports. Strangely, Mr. Barnes references the 144 military UAP incidents reported in a government report delivered in June of 2021. He then mentions a subsequent congressional hearing on UAP in May of 2022, yet he somehow fails to mention that the DOD officials appearing at the congressional hearing reported that the number of officially reported military uap incidents had precipitously climbed to 400 from 144 in less than a year are mr barnes as anonymous dod sources claiming that most of the 144 uap incidents have been explained or most of the 400 are the anonymous officials leaking information to the times the same people mr jenkins claims are quote promoting false and tendacious information to the American public for their own purposes. I cannot help wondering, uh, Mellon goes on, wondering since we have no other recent examples of DOD or IC officials leaking UAP information to the press. In short, there is too little rather than too much commotion regarding UAP, and Mr. Jenkins has it backwards when it comes to the role of the defense establishment. He goes on. One of the things that most concerns me about the recent press coverage of UAP issues is that neither Mr. Jenkins nor Mr. Barnes nor Mr. Shostak seem to have done any serious UAP research before publishing their bold claims. In that regard, I contacted a number of military personnel involved in the Nimitz incident and other prominent military UAP cases and learned that none had been interviewed by Mr. Jenkins, Mr. Barnes, or Mr. Shostak. This is a glaring omission since their testimony forms the basis for Congress' recent deep engagement on the issue. Also, some of these cases are responsible for the perception that some UFP are not of human manufacture. The failure to, intervol- to interview <clears throat> these military witnesses is also a major oversight because some of their accounts provide valid reason to believe some UAP incidents involve technology that may not be of human origin. Continuing with, with uh, Mellon, in the case of UAP, we have both a large number of fresh military reports in the hundreds but we also have a considerable and growing amount of impressive data. If any of the hundreds of DOD UAP reports ultimately proves to be a probe from an extraterrestrial civilization, it is easily the biggest discovery in human history. I'm going to repeat that. This is Mr. Mellon, a former senior Pentagon official, high in the Defense Department, who says if any, of the hundreds of DOD UA reports ultimately proved to be a probe from an extraterrestrial civilization, it is easily the biggest discovery in human history. Going on. Currently, nobody has a conventional explanation to offer for the Nimitz case or hundreds of other military cases now under review. There are also hundreds of thousands of civilian UAP reports worldwide, including hundreds obtained by the military forces of civilian, of countries rather, such as France, Brazil, Chile, and Russia. Recall also that we have only just begun to ask mil- military personnel in the United States to report their sightings, when you're only just beginning to analyze them. Naturally, most UAP reports will have conventional explanations. But it is intellectually dishonest to ignore the hard and well-documented cases that suggest we may have been discovered by others with whom we most likely share the galaxy. To return to Mr. Jenkins, this is Melvin continuing, let there be no doubt the defense establishment has consistently sought to downplay and avoid the UAP issue, not promote it. For those unfamiliar with the facts, let's briefly review the history. 1970, the USAF, eager to wash its hands of the UAP issue, abandoned its UAP investigation, Project Blue Book. Despite over 700 plain UAP reports, read UFO, the Air Force would have us believe that UAP are simply and entirely the result of, quote, a mild form of hysteria. Individuals who fabricate reports to perpetuate a hoax or seek publicity, psychopathological persons, and misidentification of natural objects, close quote. In other words, according to the Air Force in 1970, those reporting UAP were crazy, naive, or engaged in fraud. As all students of the UAP issue know, DOD and the USAF have consistently resisted serious public inquiry regarding the uap issue winter of 2017 lou Elizondo makes me aware that he's another member of this uh, inner club in fact he was part of a pentagon um secret program that was backed by two senators from uh the the uh public i think you blew by the break uh yes i did okay well we will continue and then we'll just insert a break at the bottom of the hour Lozano makes me aware, says Mellon, that restricted U.S. airspace is being routinely violated by UAP. I learned that this has been going on weekly, not daily, for months and years. Yet the DOD and IC leadership is in the dark. Lou and his team are profoundly alarmed by the prospect of clandestine reconnaissance directed against U.S. naval strike groups and other vital U.S. military capabilities even more concerning these mysterious vehicles in some cases appearing to demonstrate capabilities beyond any anything in the u.s inventory to include even the highly classified reconnaissance platforms developed by dod and the ic by lockheed martin skunk works the boeing phantom works and other contractors now summer fall 2017 in an effort to alert the leadership to these worrisome and unexplained intrusions, I Mellon introduced Elizondo to two officials who reported directly to then Secretary of Defense James Mattis. Months of effort passed, but it proves impossible to get anyone at DoD to notify the secretary or take meaningful action. October 2017 Lou resigns in protest after it becomes evident the obdurate OSD bureaucracy is unwilling to acknowledge the UAP issue and investigation. November 2017, in desperation, when it becomes clear DOD and the military will not respond to these alarming intrusions of U.S. military airspace, I, Mellon, reach out to Leslie Keene of the New York Times, as well as reporters from the Washington Post and Politico. The New York Times editors are highly skeptical initially, but lose authoritative testimony, and the unclassified documentation and official DOD videos I provided suffice to convince them the story is real. Politico is also keenly interested, but the New York Times seems the better choice for gaining the attention of the Congress, so I, Mellon, proceed accordingly, providing them two unclassified but official DOD UAP videos and other unclassified information. The primary goal is to sound the alarm to engage Congress in the hope they will compel DOD to take action. I also facilitate the New York Times interview with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid by Helene Cooper, the lead reporter on the New York Times story. During the interview, Senator Reid recounts details of his own frustrating efforts to get DOD to take the UAP issue seriously. Meanwhile, Lou introduces Helene Cooper, Leslie Keene, and Ralph Blumenthal of the New York Times to Commander Dave Farver and other impeccably reliable and competent Navy aviators. And on December 17, 2017, the New York Times publishes an article by Leslie Ralph and Helene, entitled Glowing Auras and Black Money, Winter of 2017-2018. This is still Mellon. The Washington Post publishes an op-ed of mine titled, The Military Keeps Encountering UFOs, Why Doesn't the Pentagon Care? In this op-ed, the first of many, I propose Congress ask the Secretary of Defense for an all-source study of the UAP issue. I also used the opportunity to release another unclassified but official DoD UAP video. Meanwhile, I introduced Loizando to staff from the Senate Armed Services and Intelligence Committees, and in turn, Lou and I introduced Senate staffers to a number of Navy aviators, including Dave Farver, Ryan Graves, and Alex Dietrich, as well as other DoD personnel and contractors who in, have encountered UAP. Impressed, the Senate staff arranged briefings by the Navy aviators for committee members. Bill Nelson, who later becomes NASA director in the Biden administration, is among the senators who attended these briefings and is deeply and understandably impressed by the testimony of the Navy aviators, hence current NASA's current unprecedented interest in the U. AP issue twenty nineteen DoD acknowledges the authenticity of the unclassified UAP videos that I provided to the New York Times and the post Lou Tom Delong and I do what we can to raise awareness to include multiple press interviews and participation in a history channel TV series called Unidentified for the first time in recent history, perhaps ever act duty. U.S. military personnel are permitted to publicly discuss their UAP encounters on camera. 2020, Congress, frustrated by DOD's lack of action and responsiveness, directs DOD to create a UAP organization and establish UAP reporting procedures. This is occurring because DOD and the IC have not been forthcoming on the UAP issue. The USAF in particular resists providing UAP information even when the inquiries originate with the Deputy Secretary of Defense. After two years of making introductions and engaging in discussions, writing op-eds, and even drafting and posting draft report language online, the Senate Intelligence Committee adopts my recommendation to request an unclassified UA report. UAP report from the DNI that's the uh, director of Na- of uh, national intelligence 2021 this is Mellon continuing in response to perceived DOD foot dragging congress goes further demanding DOD provide additional information and among other things prepare a UAP science report and a UAP collection plan meanwhile The unclassified UAP report requested by the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2020 arrives in June. It cites 144 military UAP incidents since 2004. Only one was solved, that of the balloon. The report fails to include NORAD, uncorrelated track reports, or space, or undersea anomalies. It is a start. Of course, the document also includes, does not include the estimated 90% of UAP incidents that are never reported due to fear of negative repercussions on careers and reputations. Nevertheless, the unclassified UAP reports confirm the reality of hundreds of UAP incidents, most captured by multiple sensors. Although many or perhaps even all UAP might prove To have conventional explanations to date, none of the 400 UAP incidents identified by DOD are definitively linked to Russia, Chinese, or U.S. classified aircraft. The government UAP data therefore strengthens the possibility that some UAP may be manifestations of technology beyond Earth. Yet the media almost universally conveys a no-aliens message in their coverage of the UAP report rather than observing that the preliminary data is consistent with the ET hypothesis. 22, this is Mellon's continuing. Congress strengthens the UAP legislation in the intelligence and defense authorization bills to include unprecedented new provisions that provide whistleblower protections for anyone aware of UAP programs that may not have been briefed to Congress. It also directs a review of all UAP intelligence documents going back to World War II, as well as requiring DHS, that's the Department of Homeland Security, DOD, and the IC to identify and share with Congress any non-disclosure agreements related to UAP. Already in December of 2022, people are stepping forward to avail themselves of this whistleblower protection. Again, let me read that. As of Mellon, as of a couple of days ago, apropos of Barbara's overview of the NDAA, already in December of 2022, people are stepping forward to avail themselves of the whistleblower protection in the 2023 National Defense and Authorization Act signed by the Presidents just a few days ago, and that oh, is that the something? end. And that is the end of uh, Mellon's statement. Yes, Barbara.
5: Yeah, I just want to uh, point out that uh, kind of two-thirds of the way through this chronology uh, by Mellon, he mentioned that he was the source of two. Unclassified documents, um, including the Navy uh, videos that were given to the New York Times, but given Biden's new executive order um, they would they, he could have uh, given them classified documents <laughs> and there was nothing that the uh, that the government would do to to prevent the New York Times from publishing them.
0: Yeah, Stephen goes on after uh, Mellon's commentary. He said, this is an admittedly cursory and limited version of the recent history of the UAP issue based on the narrow window of, um, I I guess it is his continuing. Anyway, it's just kind of a summation of what he's just said before. Um, What I think we ought to do now, given that we're having serious issues with getting Stephen connected, And this is the kind of centerpiece of what he was going to discuss. I think Mellon forward and basically saying that all the mainstream press on this issue are lying, I'll say it, he doesn't, but I'll say it, indicates to me that not only Barbara is this issue the most historical in in human history, but the resistance to crossing this finish line, to making this data generally public is the most important issue politically facing us in 2023, Trump's trials or indictments or whatever, notwithstanding. And I am predicting, this is going to be going way on a limb, that what Trump did in taking all those top secret documents, including documents relating to this issue, he basically was trying to buy himself an insurance policy. And if the government is consistent Those that are wanting to keep us in the dark will prevail over those wanting to make all this public, and Trump will not be indicted. He will not face a court, except maybe locally in New York and Georgia, but on the Marimago documents case, and maybe even, you know, uh, uh, 1-6, he will escape because he has the ultimate blackmail, which is revealing the truth on something that no one at the deep state level, appears to want to reveal. And they're doing everything they can to keep the situation completely clouded, completely murky, and completely in the dark.
5: But I agree that um, he almost certainly retained some of those highly classified documents. Let's remind your listeners that some of those documents, according to the Department of Justice, were so highly classified, national security class- classifications, that they had great difficulty finding any attorneys uh with uh the highest uh the a high enough level of clearance in order to even read them, uh to go through them. <laughs> so I agree with you that he probably retained a good number of them uh basically as a gray mail operation. Uh a cock gun at the uh at the uh, you know, the, the head of the department of, of justice. Uh basically saying, okay, you know, if you go after me, I'll release these. And that's one of the main reasons that they're so obsessed to get them all.
0: Well, there is an actual precedent historically going back through Vietnam, through Iran-Contra, all the weird activities that the CIA did in Latin America, where certain um, protagonists who were heavily involved, they basically held the government blackmail. So they could not be prosecuted, and because of the incredible sensitivity of the documents and the on-the-record information they could provide to the press, they're basically they, – they they skipped indictment. They were not indicted. They were never, never brought to trial. It was quietly deep-sixed so that that information never became public. I think that's what Trump has done in this situation. And no, I
5: agree with you. It's called grayness.
0: Yeah, elect- yeah. And of course it's a very bold and uh, blatant political uh, prediction and of course in politics uh, you can always be proven wrong when even when people change their mind. Um,
5: however however, Trump no longer has the vast majority of those documents he was using for gray mail if that's what he was doing. And it's one thing to uh have a cock gun that uh, where where the government doesn't know what you have. Um and they of course they're gonna they're gonna fear the worst. And, therefore, it's, it's it's a great deterrent um, to going after him, to, to actually bringing criminal indictments against him. However, there are grand juries. It's, it's Grand juries are serious. And there are ongoing multiple grand juries that are looking into whether to uh, issue an indictment, to request the U.S. attorney
3: to issue an indictment. Hey, Barbara? Yeah.
0: Uh, a, a, to, this is Ron Gerbrandt. If you would all yeah, identify see. yourselves because voices on Skype sound similar sometimes, okay,
3: uh I was just waiting for a chance to ask Barbara this question anyway uh well it's a two we'll make it a two parter one uh could you uh Barbara explain to everybody what a grand jury really is because we don't have under you know normal circumstances for the citizenry uh Professional jurors, like they do in France or Britain, has them as well. And uh, they, uh, you know, they. So when they say they have empowered a grand jury, that doesn't mean, I don't think, that there are uh, jury rooms full of uh, pundits waiting around to be used. They have to. They have to pick people to put them on this. I mean, it. That's maybe right. kept, just see, like just like right. a regular grand jury. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's no. it's not. Yeah, it's not the jury of your peers things. So there's a control mechanism there. But what's been bothering me about the uh, disclosure release stuff, uh, and this might relate to <clears throat> Trump. See, I didn't yell at you, Richard. Uh, <laughs> the uh, if he was uh, if some of the documents that were there at Mar-a-Lago were not just to put in the Trump Museum, in the future uh, say, see what was going on while I was in charge. Uh, But what happens to crucial documents that reveal things that people are waiting for, they, they get inadvertently shredded or they disappear or yeah, we loaded them in the milk truck that was parked outside instead of the armored car. And we don't know where they went. You know, they have all kinds of excuses to make the stuff disappear, but anything that Trump took home, uh, that's got layers of records of its existence and its, uh, you know, its subject matter, and so in a sense it protects them from being inadvertently, accidentally shredded.
5: Well, that's interesting. Well, to, to answer your main question, what is a grand jury? In this case, we're talking about federal criminal grand juries, and the most important thing for people to know about federal criminal grand juries is that they are in the Constitution itself, in the text of the Constitution, in, in, uh, covered by both the First Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And there is an incredibly important and foundational Supreme Court decision um, by, uh, written by none other than Scalia, who is arguably the most conservative justice ever of the Supreme Court, even more so than Clarence Thomas or Alito today.
2: Wow. And
5: was certainly their hero and their mentor. Um this is the, uh, the case of U.S. versus Williams or Williams versus U.S. I always get it backwards. I think it's U.S. versus Williams. And in this case, um, the bottom line uh, uh, decision by Scalia um, was that the uh, federal criminal grand juries, uh, because they are in the Constitution and they are separate from the explicitly mentioned three other branches of government, the, the ruling was that federal criminal grand juries are a fourth people's branch of the federal government co-equal with the presidency, the executive, with the uh, courts uh, and uh, with the, um, the, what's the other one? Oh, Congress, of course. Um, and that, and that they are their own separate independent sovereign branch uh, of government. And so, uh, to answer your question about what it is, uh, when there there are in almost every jurisdiction uh, where there are at least 40 million people within that jurisdiction of the U.S. attorney, for instance, in the Second uh, Circuit in the Coverage huh? Manhattan for the World Trade Center attack on 9-11, Uh, If you've got, as I recall, the figure, it changes over time with the census, but I think it's now 40 million people or above. They have to have a U.S. attorney, and that U.S. attorney is required by federal law to present any evidence that any citizen or anyone, for that matter, you don't have to be a citizen, but that's the most important uh, people who could uh, present Evidence of crimes to a sitting criminal grand jury. So, if you've got a jurisdiction with a U.S. attorney that has 40 million people or more, I believe today, the number, um, you are required to have a standing uh, sitting criminal grand jury in your jurisdiction. So, in that case, uh, yes, hmm. there are usually 23 members of that grand jury and a foreman. And these is- are,
0: and these are picked from ordinary citizen. Ordinary, uh, voter to rolls. Be
5: kept from ordinary citizens on a random basis, like from d and d records or voting records
0: yeah oh thank you and they rotate they have a they have a limited lifespan unless they're renewed, so it's not the same people it rotates, and so you get new people all the time looking at these issues that are
5: well they're not they're not going to rotate they're they're going to keep a sitting criminal grand jury in effect um Throughout a single case
3: right they're right. Not
5: gonna, they're not going to substitute the new grand jury and start all over
0: no. uh, maybe my my wording was inaccurate, I meant in terms of over time, there are multiple grand juries, each one has a has a drop dead date, depending upon the case
5: but it can be extended
0: exactly exactly
5: on the order of the judge, and the judge uh, normally, if not always, selects the foreman of the jury who has phenomenal power. The foreman really has too much power uh, in the current system. But anyway, that's that's the gist of uh, federal criminal grand juries. And our case right now, uh, before the Supreme Court, that they will decide whether to take it in five days on January 6th, uh, mm-hmm. is about returning the power of individual citizens of the United States to man require, as federal law already does, passed by Congress, to pass all of our evidence of crimes to a sitting or or convened federal criminal grand jury.
0: Well, given that this is kind of what they're... I'm I'm learning a whole bunch of legal terms by following what's been going on the last four or five years. Given that this is kind of like black-letter law, meaning there's very little wiggle room for misinterpretation, like... Does the chairman of the House committee have the right to uh, the, you know, Trump's tax returns? Uh, Trump fought him all the way up to the Supreme Court over a couple of years. And ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that the committee won and Trump lost because the law says clearly the chairman of the committee has the right. Right. And well, I think the law is what
5: the Supreme Court says it is.
0: OK, well, but, but see, there is story decisis precedent and uh, that,
5: that's been thrown out the window
0: well yes uh, yes and no it's like it's there's, there's this gray area i'm just looking at this um if you have five conservative members who are ostensibly you know strict constructionists when it comes to the constitution no
2: there's six now not five
0: there are six okay then six out of nine do you have in fact a preponderance of people that would tend to, as with the Trump case, on taxes, vote with the letter of the law.
5: Well, that's what we're hoping, that they'll vote with the letter of the Constitution. But law you? should
0: be more than hope. That's why you write things down.
5: Yeah, I understand that, but there's, they are political as well. We'll see what happens.
0: Well, all right, when, when this goes through, let's, let, we got a few minutes till the bottom of the hour, tell us about procedurally how this works. You had to submit a written brief, or are you represented by a live attorney to argue before live justices as to whether this should be a case?
5: Oh, good question. Um, You can read our petition. It's called a Petition for Cert. It's short for a word like certiori. uh, I'm sure it's Latin. Yeah, it's Latin,
0: certiori. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah,
5: certiori. Um, But we, we filed a petition for cert, which you can read every word of, uh, right close to the top of the homepage on our website, C, like, stands for Lawyers Committee, LC4FOR911.org. That's L C F O 4 for 911org Just read our entire petition. So we submitted that petition on uh, November 3rd, as I recall the date, uh, and um, sometime in early December, I think December 5th, something like that. Uh, the court got back with, uh, with a, an official document saying that they had recorded our cert petition and that they were going to be uh, holding the conference uh, to decide whether to accept the case on January 6th. Um, so um, are we going to be able to have McHarrison, our litigation director, or any other attorney there for that conference? No, that is only
0: the justices themselves. So they have a virtual reality phone call, Skype, whatever, and or they're all in the same building there in, at the court. and they they're, go, me,
2: they're
5: meeting in person again. Say again? They're meeting in person yes, again. Yes, yes,
0: I, I, I kind of remember that. Okay, so they have a bunch of these documents that come in, I presume, right?
5: Well, they have thousands. Last year they had over 8,000 requests for search petitions for search and they only accepted about 75.
0: But are you one of the thousands, or are you of a higher tier level where it's another procedure prior to a final uh, decision? That's
5: a very good question. Based upon the content of our petition, we should be at the highest level. There are three. There are three categories of cert petitions that, by their own policy and precedent and tradition, the Supreme Court is most is supposed to be most likely to accept. Ours is definitely false into that category.
0: Because what? Um, it, it goes into fundamental constitutional issues? Uh,
5: it, it's a question of, uh, yes, fundamental, constitu- three things, as I recall. Fundamental constitutional issues. Um, uh, cases where there have been differing opinions by different appeals courts. Um, in this case, I don't think that applies. Um, in fact, one of the paradoxes is that uh, there was a decision, a previous uh, decision a few years ago, by the Second Circuit in New York, which is where our case originated, um, the jurisdiction for the World Trade Center attacks on 9-11, that actually found in favor of what we're arguing. And then the very same court uh, went against its own precedent in our case, because they are really trying to bury the facts of ever becoming
0: officialized about hmm, but lightning could strike, right?
5: And the other, the other um, uh, qualification for being at its highest level of of where they should accept it um, for this term um, is if it's a matter of extreme or high public interest and importance.
0: Certainly qualifies it.
5: Certainly the truth about 9-11, evidence that the official story of who attacked America on 9-11 is false, should fall into that
0: category. Well, again, going back to Rick, as we started the show with the physics, if that trend curve is correct, then it should hit the fan and it could begin after the 6th of January.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll see. We don't know. But uh, we're very hopeful. Uh, we're, we're, as we say, we're, we're cautiously optimistic, but we're not going to give up. Even if they don't take the case, we'll go to another venue.
0: Fascinating. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. We're still trying to get Stephen. Uh, we're having impossible problems. I, I'm thinking that this is not uh, statistically just Mercury retrograde, but I think we got the crucial information out. Thanks to you, Barbara. Um, when we come back, we're going to have a free-for-all. We've got Robert Morningstar, who has been incredibly patient, but actually videoed a real UAP, UFO, ET craft, something over Central Park. And we've got video and images, and then we'll open it up to Rogero's joining us from Britain. Andrew Curry's supposed to be on tap. Ron is with us, Ron Braun in San Diego. And yours truly. And Georgia Lambert. Oh, that's right. I forgot Georgia. How could I forget Georgia? I don't know. (laughs) Because it's on a Sunday night late and I'm being snowed by technical issues. Gremlins. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Oakland. We shall (laughs) return.
4: Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs, $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment for your endeavors. $8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of Midnight.com.
3: And
0: welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. You know, given the fact that we have so many in the enterprise family, and we've had real problems with Stephen, which we will now have a week to work out. Uh, Mercury will be in some different phase of retrograde. and We've got a bunch of other people that want to be part of tonight, and, you know, you have to, some can and some can't. We might do this again next Sunday night live. Saturday, we're going to do the moon and the bean uh, painting and how we raise funds for the political fight of our lives to, as you can see, uh, cut across the headwinds against disclosure, and we seem to be having help from uh, foreign governments like the South Koreans, what are they up to? They're showing us astonishing stuff. Look at those images. Those are real data, real images, real amazing insights into the ancient dome around the moon. Regardless of all those people who say, oh, that's impossible. No, it's not. Look at the damn data anyway um let's see now we've got georgia with us i believe and andrew you are with us and robert's been terribly patient so robert let's go to you first okay robert morningstar our civilian intelligence analyst who has credits and background too numerous to mention go to the website take a look robert you're a regular you're part of the family what do you got for tonight in terms of what's going to happen Thank you, and uh, wishing everybody a Happy New Year. And I thought we'd have more time for prognostications, but I would... We'll do part two. We'll definitely do part two next Sunday. Yes. Take the music off? I did. Not here. Anyway, I like like background music. uh, uh, On December 17th, I had a remarkable experience. I had my ninth UFO encounter at basically the same place, and... uh, Well once at the same time as a previous one, four o'clock in the afternoon at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument in New York City, since 2007, I've had nine observations and encounters with UFOs there, and it was wonderful, uh, I don't know, synchronicity, chance or choice or what, I was walking to the park with my friend and I had my camera I loaded for the first time in three months. I took the camera, the video camera out, and I said to my friend, hey, you know, we haven't shot video in about three months. Maybe today is the day we'll capture a UFO on camera. Ha ha ha. Really facetiously, you know. And then I went, I started shooting as I do a promenade in Riverside Park, not Central Park. It's a much smaller but more beautiful park because it has the Hudson River and a, uh, a panoramic view of New Jersey. And big sky, as I call it. So I shot a bunch of videos. And then I came upon the flag. And the flag was out. The, the, the breeze, or the wind was stiff. And both flags were out. We fly in New York City, the, the American flag, the national banner. And below it, a black flag with a white circle and a, a head in it, silhouette. And it's the MIA flag, missing in action. So New York always flies the two of them. So they were stiff out. Straight on the wind. And I said, i want to take a picture of the flags. You know, they're really you know, well displayed today because of the wind. So I opened my camera. And my camera is a, um, a video camera, not an iPhone. So when you flip out the screen, it turns the camera on. So I was looking down at the camera. I flipped open the screen. I looked at the screen. I framed the flags as I wanted them. And I pressed the button. And less than two seconds after I started recording, I saw a black form go right across, really fast, really dark. And I said to myself, "Wow, that was a big bird, pretty dark bird too, you know." So, uh, but you know something, my cognitive dissonance happened because I said to myself, "If if this bird was that big and that close to me, I should have felt it." But this was just a momentary, you know, reasoning. Like, I should have felt that bird. I should have felt the flap. I should have heard something, but I didn't. Long story short, 10 hours later, late at night, I said to myself, let me take a look at these, this video or these videos, Christmas lights and New York at Christmas time, blah, blah, blah. So I turned it on and I see this thing go by the thing I thought was a bird. And I thought, what? It was just too fast. it had, it, it left two shapes, one at the entry and one at the exit. And I said, "What the hell is that? That's no bird." So then I slowed the film down. I think I showed it to you about two weeks ago. I slowed the film yes, down. Yes. And frame by frame, I saw what I think is the best UFO video of a UFO over New York, or flying by New York that anyone's ever taken. It was just—it was either chance or their choice. They showed themselves. And in, it crossed the sky in seven frames. And that is uh, seven frames at 25 frames per second. So it crossed the sky in 0.28, 28 hundredths of a second. So then I went frame by frame and I captured seven frames. In the first frame, it's the nose of the object that appears. Then uh, five frames six frames where it makes the transit across a flagpole and formed a cross. So I included uh, two frames because unfortunately on the solstice, my computer crashed just as I was finishing off a video that I was planning to post on the solstice for Christmas, for New Year's. But my, uh, the crash was really severe and it's taken me 10 days to recover the data. So I have captured, uh, I extracted two frames as it crosses the flagpole. And it was supposed to be my Christmas card. I I split the frames in half and joined them. And as the UFO crosses, it forms a cross with the flagstaff. While I'm here, I'd like to thank our friend um, uh, Holger Eisenberg for sending us that picture uh, of the transit of Sirius, across the, the, the median line at exactly midnight last night, he saw some correlation there forming a cross in the sky. Be that as it may, this is a unique experience. It took me completely by surprise, and I think it was by their choice. On June 1st of 2019, I had an even closer encounter with a UFO that transformed from a sphere into a flying saucer and flew around the monument waving at me and people say they get messages telepathic messages from ufos so as this ufo flew away toward teterboro airport in new jersey it was waving its wings let's call it wings it was oscillating right left right left the message i got was happy
6: flying robert <laughs> so i took from it to one heart.
0: pilot to another yeah from one pilot to another now um the, the pictures speak for themselves. You, you, the Enterprise crew, got to see the video as I stopped the frame, and you saw how fast this thing uh, went Well, the on. thing that struck me, remember you sent it to me, and I took it into my programs, and I did some work, and I you know, did a bunch of stuff on it. It's clear that it's going behind the flagpole. Yeah, exactly. That's yep. the crucial datum, because from that, Absolutely. it cannot be a bird. Cannot, cannot, cannot. It it could be no, Superman, we, but it cannot be a bird. Right. That's right. Now uh, we have very little time, and so I want to make a couple of comments uh, on what. Well, we're uh, going to do part two season. next Sunday. See how this this kind yeah, of well, unfolds. Yeah, let, let me just say this. this, this. With a, uh, the regarding Trump and, and the documents, uh, well, we don't know what he took. It's a to good hypothesis. He may have taken the, the most serious ones, which would, would be the JFK assassination files and the... I disagree US- on that. I think the UFO well, UAP matter. things is the... Let's, let's, let's save some time here. I want to get this information out and I want to get off because I want to go to sleep. <laughs> the signing of the NDAA by Biden gives him protection as a whistle if it's retroactive so I was thinking that a moment ago if it's retroactive oh, good. I said it. that's good okay let's go on to the next thing the US government has been lying about UFOs since the 1940s and in fact before the 1940s because of fear of the consequences that were uh, following war of the world they have painted themselves into a corner a Gordian knot of legislation. The U.S. government ceded authority over UFO research and information. In 1969, Richard Nixon divested the U.S. government of its authority over UFOs in order to clear the decks for what he wanted to do. And what he did was transfer the authority to the military-industrial complex and a new agency was formed called the Dis- Defense Intelligence Security Command, also known as DISC or DISCO when you add organization to it. And that is the group that mm-hmm. seized power. And what and are flying saucers it, known as UFOs? DIS. DIS. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's it, obvious. It's a it's, it's a, a, a it's a Dickensonian pun. You know, I think UAP is, is bull crap. Oh, of course. It's actually a joke on all of us because the right way to pronounce it is U-Apes. Okay? They're saying U-Apes. <laughs> a- They're not UFOs. They're not flying saucers. u They are UAPs. So I say go to hell. Okay? Go to hell. I'm tired of it. And another note, I would like to commend Senator Marco Rubio for having had the guts and, as the Spanish say, the cojones to take up the, the fight. And I'll tell you, when he did that interview about two years ago, maybe it was a year and a half ago, he did a, an interview, I guess, with CBS. The guy was trembling. He was, in, he was in deep stress because it took so much courage to stand up there and say, yeah, we have to find out about UFOs. And obviously, if he's saying that, he believes in UFO, which has been a stigma on anyone, everyone who has broached the subject, in and out of government. So the government painted itself into a corner, uh, specifically, uh, tightly, in 1969. But in 1947, a group of astronomers were hired by Project Sign to track the motherships, which were deploying the scout ships that were descending. And, And we're talking about Donald Menzel and company. They tracked the mothership's coming and going from Saturn's moon Titan. So there's something uh, very, very uh, well sinister about it to me, the association of Saturn and Satan and dark side with regard to liabilities. The U S government faces tremendous liability unless they write a law to, you know, clear themselves because They've lied to everyone about the alien presence, alien abductions, cattle mutilations, human mutilations. More than 40,000 head of cattle have been mutilated in the same way, not only in the United States, but Argentina, Japan, Europe. And they kept denying it. And the last thing I'll say is every once in a while the FBI tells the truth, but they tell it like your grandmother said. What they say They they did an investigation of cattle mutilations, and they said, this is the work of a satanic cult. Yeah, 40,000 head of cattle in the United States and 70,000 head of cattle in Europe and uh, Argentina. What satanic cult is capable of doing that? It just gives you a hint of why I said that these crafts that I associate, because of Donald Menzel... his his observations in 1947 that they were coming and going from Saturn. And we all know about the ships that are embedded in the rings of Saturn. The Ringmakers of Saturn is a very important book. So uh, the government is in a bind and it's trying to retract the authority that it gave to the military industrial complex and DISC. And you know, when people seize power, get power, they are loath to give it back. So this is the internecine war that is happening within the government, the DOD, uh, and the military-industrial complex. So that's the way I see it, and um, I hope we come to a resolution. And I'll put my video up against anybody and say, (laughs) hey, prove it. Prove it's a cloud traveling thousands of miles an hour and crossing the sky in 0.28. Well, did you figure out a minimum well, velocity if it's just beyond the flagpole? Well, I said thousands of miles an hour. <laughs> I can't. I have it. We we don't know how far behind the flagpole. No, but if it's just behind, in other words, a minimum distance would give you a minimum well, the distance, velocity. Yeah. Well, actually, I would consider having been over the river. And perhaps a quarter mile away. Okay. So we, you and I can work on the on the. Yeah, uh, on the, G- we'll, I, I will do that in my <laughs> copious, copious, copious spare time. Before next Sunday night, I will yeah. figure out the minimum velocity of Robert's UFO over Central Park. Okay, Andrew, are you no, with
1: Riverside, us? No, Riverside. Riverside, Don't lead them to the wrong place.
0: River, yeah, you're looking in the other direction. Yes, yeah, so you're right. Okay. If, if disclosure happens, if the UFOs come to New York, I think it's
3: going to be at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument because really? there's
0: no perfect place okay. as far as a landmark is concerned of historic importance and significance. Your mileage may differ. Anyway, Andrew, are you with us? Okay. Have a good night. Good night, Robert. Happy New Year. Andrew, are you with us?
6: Yes, I am. There right. you are.
0: Okay, turn yeah. up your gain a bit.
6: Okay, is that getting better? Yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. I know it's we're getting close to the edge here, but I, I do want to acknowledge um, something. Um, I know we've had this unfolding, Alan Bean. Uh, well, what we believe is a revelation, and maybe he is the anointed one to share, you know, the information of what's really on the moon. And I just want to uh, go back to. So, Richard, the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame—that's where his this mural is, that this "Reaching to the Stars" mural, correct? I that's believe, yes. Yeah
0: at, uh, yeah, at Cape Canaveral.
6: Cape Canaveral, yeah. And I just want to—I I know we—I know um, uh, Barbara was talking about making a purchase of uh, a limited edition print. That's awesome. Thank you, Barbara, and for what you're going to do. But I do want to acknowledge that it was Laura London, friend of the show, who did bring this to our attention. And it might even have been her photographs that sort of got part well, of Well, she brought
0: this oh. specific painting, not the bean concept that no, 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 no. he's yes.
6: a leaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, yeah she was
0: there in person and actually photographed it against yes. the girders mounted behind the podium in the same hall where they've got a full-size Saturn V. That's where they yes. built this thing.
6: Yeah, and we were trying to figure out, just folks, this might be a little minutia, but we were trying to figure out whether it was a real,
0: a real large painting,
6: size, real painting, or if it was a, you know, Um, uh, Yeah, I seem to
0: remember in his book that he did some really big art murals, the kind of stuff that uh, Kinthea used to do, you know, on huge canvas or not canvas, but Masonite or whatever. And I think it looks like one of those.
6: It could be. To me, it looks like it's it's a fascinating But either way, Richard, it's a fascinating study. It continues on. It's another thread. And it elevates Bean of all the
0: astronauts. So every damn tourist who goes to see a Saturn V, the astronaut who did the painting of man going beyond the stars, that's an Alan Bean painting.
6: Exactly. So, yeah, that was the little bit I wanted to get in and just wish everybody – a very happy new year. And um, I know we don't really have time to get into prognostications and stuff, but we'll save that all for
0: next Sunday. I mean, it's obvious the show writes itself or Skype does or Mercury retrograde does or whatever. So, yeah,
6: Yeah. well, thank you, Richard.
0: my pleasure. Um, Let's see. Who else have I, I think Ruggiero had to go. I think he has a a day job in Britain and it's time for him to go to work. So he'll be with us next Sunday night. Uh, Richard. Yes, Ron, you're there.
3: Yeah, I got a bizarre. I've got a bizarre thought. This this came up today. Oh, cool, uh, it's cool. I it's, love this. Somewhat. No, yeah, I know. It's not. Uh, no, no, no. It wasn't the fact that I checked my sources and found that nobody seems to have any idea what the Koreans are up to. Uh, the uh, you know why it's been so um, why they've, they've definitely silent.
0: Rough. For humans not to brag about when they do something nobody in their country, their nationality, their race, whatever, has ever done in history, and they go and do it, and they don't utter their damn mouths and say a word, something
3: weird is going on. Right. Well, here's a brand new Mandela effect possibility. I'm scratching my head over this because it's – I came out to California in 1965. This is not really arguable <laughs> <You> know, <it's, laughs> okay it's a hard date and uh prior to that uh I spent much of my time indoors in my room uh in a rather large house but i i mean i it was all stuffed with books, and I belonged to this um printing stuff uh outfit they used to have it was well they would send you books you had some ability to choose amongst them but you you agreed to get like six bucks a six books a month or something and uh, i was part of that oh
0: those were and called I, those were called book
3: clubs yeah okay just a book club yes yes one of those well uh and I, mine was all arcane and strange stuff generally well i got a uh copy of a book by uh, uh santiana uh called Hamlet's Mill. Which is oh, yes, famous, of course. Rather famous and it uh, is, wow. I remember Yeah, I remember taking it out of the box and admiring the cover uh which is just a, it's a painting of... it's kind of a yggdrasil, and, or a, a world tree growing out of the out of the earth and mm-hmm. it's got a blue background and it's a you know perfectly nice cover. I said, oh, yeah, for those
0: who don't, don't know Hamlet's Mill is written by two amazing scholars one at uh, MIT, and I forget where the other one was, a man and a woman. And they basically look back through all of written history, and they have taken the myths, and they believe that ancient peoples, 6,000 years, 8,000, 10,000, recorded the procession of the Earth, which was not formally noted until Hipparchus uh, relatively recently, uh, a few hundred years B.C., thousands of years ago, and they immortalized it in all these mythologies from cultures all over the world, and the reason it was called Hamlet's Mill is that one of them has to do with a giant mill grinding and grinding
3: reality out as fine flour out of a cosmic mill. Right. For the academically oriented, it's a, it was a counterpoint to uh, Joseph Campbell's work on yes, uh, yes mythology and uh, a somewhat of a refutation of parts of it and so forth. Anyway, it's a very chewy book. It's like over 500 pages. Mm. And I said, whoa, this is okay. This is this is hefty. Uh, so I remember all of that standing in my room in Pennsylvania, okay? Well, I was looking for another copy of it because it became relevant to me to want to read it again. And after uh, I, It's been years since I had a copy. So I was looking it up, every source I looked at. It was published in 1979.
0: So you could not have seen it in 1965.
3: But I had a copy 14 years earlier. In this
0: that. timeline, that, you could not have seen it,
3: you're saying. Exactly, exactly. Now, I don't know what other rap- uh, ramifications that has, but this one, because of the visual memory, you know, the fact that it, I couldn't have seen it anywhere else. I know where I was in 1979 or even at preprint stage in 77 uh you know when theoretically it could have existed uh or i could have seen it uh and i know exactly where i was and what i was doing and no 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 that's not what it was because i remember where i put it on the bookshelf and every other damn thing and so i said wow this is a weird one <laughs> so if anybody has if anybody has any thoughts about that because it was, definitely was not written uh in this timeline by then uh because it was that second name on there and her name was not on the copy that I remember. The visual memory. Bondeshan, just...
0: and what was her name?
3: Yeah, the other her, author. Uh, Hirsch, Herschel or Hersch. Uh, so, uh, Google is your friend. Yeah, Yeah, I'd have to look. It's easy enough to find. DeSantelana. You know?
6: DeSantelana.
3: Yeah. Ah, thank you. No, no. you're thinking of Santiana, who, uh, who's no, 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 the no, title no, 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 no.
0: He's saying the other author.
3: Uh, that's not the name that I saw earlier today. Anyway, that's not worth getting bogged down in. Anybody that's curious can look it up. But I'm just saying that a, uh, I remember the cover of the hardback, and there was a picture of it on eBay or some Amazon or someplace when I was looking today. And I said, yeah, that's the cover, but I don't remember that it had both names on it, uh, which is a minor point. You know, that could have been corrected in a printing, you know, of success, printing or something. Uh but it also explained why it was such a chewy book because it was uh mostly well according to the this timeline uh he died in uh 1988 uh, so uh, it was it's mostly his publishers putting stuff back together you know so it's written by the editors anyway just uh thought that's that's an oddity for the year and the retrograde everything that's going on
0: well, given uh, that the I, physics is modulated by precession in the earth moon system and in the solar system, the fact that yeah. that book stands out is incredibly anomalous that you remember it decades before it uh, officially appeared
3: decade and a half
0: yeah that's uh, that's not trivial that's central no, to the odd. conversation I, I, tonight
3: yeah yeah if anybody listening has, uh, is you know has any thoughts congruent to that that it was, I'd, I'd be very interested because it's uh, that's, this one's this one's strange to me. I mean, the Mandela event altogether. I can, lots had the exact same experience or analogous ones relative to him not being dead when he was, when in this timeline he was. Uh, but uh, this is such a major leap. I'm going, wow, that's a lot. And you know, I'm personally fascinated with syncretizing ancient mythologies, and getting them all. Uh, to some sort of common framework. Okay, we've
0: got about three minutes till the uh, anyway. end of the show. Anybody have some stunning last thoughts prior to part two they're, next Sunday?
3: They're stunned. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Barbara's never at a lost Oh, Georgia. Did Georgia no. ever join us? Where is Georgia?
3: I don't know. And next week, we have to do a, ba- a Bassett chant to get in yeah we're definitely going to have Stephen
0: we'll we'll make
3: it bass
0: it yeah
3: <laughs> i could hear him in the background on my earphones
0: i could not hear anything so you know what maybe let's he, not maybe let's not spend the closing few minutes side. talking about housekeeping i hate housekeeping yeah. you know this is obviously uh-huh. uh, uh well you that's a it's that's a well-known thing i hate housekeeping you should see my house you think you hate housekeeping okay uh barbara oh. any any thoughts I don't hear Barbara. I think Barbara may have left us.
3: Uh, uh, she's probably just mute, muted. No, no, so, I, I,
0: I think she's no. gone. Maybe you and uh, I get, well. Maybe, well, we got, you know, uh, 45 seconds to close out the show. I'm thinking, based on what the Koreans are doing and all the other yeah. missions that are headed, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that will be uh, reloaded in for next Sunday night's radio with pictures, that we're going to see a breakthrough on the lunar front first, and that's because that will stand still. Different, nations, different spacecraft, different observers. And don't forget, mm-hmm. we've got Elon Musk taking nine tourists to the moon in the starship, where we should be having a major uh, uh, test of the starship in the next couple of weeks from Texas, launching into orbit, which, of course, all of this outside government civilian people who don't sign their own NDAs, uh, breakthroughs are going to come from. And on that note, we're out of time. I want to thank everyone tonight who participated in a very turbulent, very chopped up, very Mercury retrograde forecast of what's going to happen in 2023. Next Sunday, we'll do it again. We'll probably include more people because we have a huge global family And Saturday, we're doing The Moon, Alan Bean, The Paintings, and I'll have a couple of surprises. So until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on to morning. Good night, everyone, and Happy New Year.